Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. I'm doing all right. Can you all hear me good? Oh, yeah. Yes, I can. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Robert. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sure there's going to be cause to hopefully have you on. Well, not hopefully, but have cause to have you on again, but uh, we really like it. Um, now, one thing we'll talk about uh, this evening is uh, we have a link here uh, on Blog Talk Radio uh, to the website with these articles. Um but I certainly find them fascinating reading, and anyone who reads them uh, can see, wow, this is, this is actually unbelievably happening here uh, in the United States. Uh, so that's why I like, uh, you, know, to, you know, to start with uh, tonight uh, with that. And, you know, the first one's, you know, the article, 
you know, Biden administration steps up youth and Asia program uh, for political vaccine opponents. So I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, such as, you know, in that article, you know, like, you know, you know how you compare what Biden is doing uh, with what, you know, he calls, you know, equitable rationing of scarce medical uh, therapies, uh, basically the way, that, you know, the Nazis started things out. Sure. So, uh, I, you know, I want to I want to cover a few things. Uh, number one, I think it's important to just point out that I think the Biden administration is starting to lose this fight. I think that's an important first point. We'll keep that in mind, and we can come back to that. Because when I, when people make claims that uh, start talking about anything from World War II, you know, the 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 left throws around the anyone who disagrees with we anyone who disagrees with me is literally Hitler, you know, argument. Uh, way too much, and it's it's sort of becoming, I think, some people think about it like the boy who cried wolf. But what does it mean when you're actually rationing the ability to receive life-saving medical treatment based on race? I mean, <laughs> how how is that not a first step to something even more horrible like ethnic cleansing? And this is something that if, if we don't um, succumb to histrionics around having a conversation about what happened in World War II, but we sort of step back and look a little bit more scientifically at uh, reports from people who sat on the tribunal for the Nazi medical doctors, and we look at what people like him, Dr. Leo Alexander most notably, had to say about some of these things that were happening then, we see clearly that there are historical precedents of what we don't want to repeat. And I don't think necessarily that we're ever going to see a literal repeating of history. I don't think history ever really works that way. I think people learn from their mistakes and people learn from history. And of course we're human beings, so we have free will and we can change the direction of history. But one of the things that I pointed out in my article, when you, when you look at this is that we we talk about monoclonal antibodies we talk about the, um, the emphasis by the, by the pandemic advocators, the never-ending pandemic advocators, that the only approach to treating or stopping COVID is a vaccine compared to what we've done historically for a very long time, which is uh, deal with therapies and therapeutics and have that approach, which is what the monoclonal antibodies represent. And what we see very clearly is that um, the very argument of critical race theory that uh, some people by virtue of melanin are now like permanently disadvantaged classes and or permanently oppressing oppressors that that is a, I mean, we all know, hopefully we all know (laughs) that that is a silly argument and that, um, our humanity is not located in our skin, it's located in our souls, and that we understand that the United States is a country whereby anyone can lift themselves up through hard work and good work ethics. But yet here we have an argument that has been adopted in the name of equity by the administration from day one 
which is now broadened into the medical field. And there's, there's serious, serious precedents of which probably perhaps one of the most serious is the warning um, from the close of World War II by Dr. Alexander that uh, when the Nazis uh, adopted a utilitarian approach, a Hegelian approach to uh, medicine, that some lives are just unworthy of life because they cost too much. We see that argument being tossed around today by Democrats. We see that argument being tossed around today in the form of bills to to strip uh, insurance protections from people who are sick but don't have a vaccine. Uh, we see it in the form of the rationing of monoclonal antibodies based upon race. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of documentation in the articles I went through that we can talk about. But it's there, and it's something that we have to address. And if we, if we want to just limit our conversation to saying, well, this is really bad, and we don't know how long we can go down this road before something really bad happens, or, we, or other similarly ambiguous um, future warnings, and we don't actually talk about historical precedent in this matter, then um, we're actually allowing historical precedent to catch up with us. And that's that's where that's where the fatal tragic flaw is, I think, in the public uh, discourse today. People are a little bit too nervous to actually go there and talk about it because they're afraid of the ADL or the people calling them anti-Semites. They're afraid of actually being, uh, ha- you know, Godwin's Law or whatever. They're afraid of being interpreted too literally as as that's, you know, you're just a crazy conspirophile or something like that. And, and, but, we, but there is a way to talk about this, which doesn't, it doesn't just get so reactionary like that. And I hope that's what we're going to be doing tonight. No, certainly. And, yeah, I don't really, you know, I mean, if my face is in front of a TV set generally on, you know, some news outlet or another, um, I don't watch, you know, a lot of, like, general, like, TV shows. <laughs> Uh, and, but you, you don't see it. Yeah, I, I haven't seen uh, these conversations, you know, out in the general uh, public or general media, you know, for that matter. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things, you know, you, you mentioned in the articles I want to talk more of, and, and maybe, I guess maybe it's speculation, but, I mean, I have my own, you know, thoughts and opinions of this. But what do you think that, you know, why do you think uh, Biden's refusing to put any effort uh, into increasing the supply of the, you know, monoclonal antibodies uh, that have been effective against, for one, the Omicron variant. Well, I don't think Biden's really in a lot of charge of any of what is going on here. I think what's, I think that's, I think that's probably the first thing. We have a clique of very, very powerful people who are committed to. Uh, power for themselves and the uh, constitutional system of the United States as a republic, it really uh, interferes with the power structure. So it's pretty important to understand that this is something that's much bigger than just simply, uh, you know, Biden. Uh, If we had an American people who are inspired by really profound and big ideas like the Returning to the moon, for example, with Trump's one of my program. favorites, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. 
or other other great programs. I mean, simply um, simply look at, at at the efforts that were originally made to start to reindustrialize and reamericanize our economy under Trump. Uh, there's there's lots of examples we could get into and talk about in terms of profound, far-reaching, uh, science scientifically advancing infrastructure programs with real jobs that produce real things, not this, uh, you know, fluffy money stuff or, you know, the social social media internet of things, but real technology improvements. If the American people were inspired because they participated in really lifting up our country in great ways, then they're not going to allow themselves to be stampeded into tyrannical rule over fear of of other people or of un, you know of like the common cold, which is basically what COVID is now. So I mean, who who benefits from keeping the American people completely fixated on superficial differences like race um, when we all really know there's only one race, which is the human race? And that why who benefits from that? I, I think it's pretty obvious that you have um, you know this has been called many things throughout history, uh, the military industrial complex, you know the banking cartels, the um, the financial oligarchy, there's a you know the deep state, right the British Empire. there's a grouping that really benefits. Uh, power-wise from keeping the rest of us in a state of backwardness and degeneracy and fear. And I think that's why we would see someone like the Biden administration um, just, you know, shut down, you know, shut down that monoclonals for that treat Delta and Mm -hmm. not try to produce the monoclonals that treat Omicron and just keep pushing the same old vaccine narrative, even though it's now becoming pretty damn clear that the vaccines aren't going to really do anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, even even people, you know, who had the vaccine, I mean, I know people who've had the vaccine and, and, and the number's increasing, who's had the vaccine, who's gotten, uh, who's gotten COVID. So, and, and it's, you know, of course, they keep changing the goalposts, as they say, where first all, well, you're not going to, you know, you get the, the vaccines, you're not going to get COVID. And then and you won't be able to transmit COVID. And then they moved it. Well, you're, you're just not going to get as sick unless people are going to be dying. And just, they keep moving, uh, you know, what these vaccines uh, can and can't do, which, of course, gives them suspect, you know, on their efficacy, if, if they're even worth it. Or if the COVID, the reason, the whole reason for the COVID vaccine is to actually address COVID which I think more and more people are, are starting to come around and say, maybe not. Sure. I think COVID has really replaced, uh, you know, terrorism as the new uh, permanent war, permanent revolution, uh, boogeyman. And it's wearing off. People, I think, are, are not – I think more and more people are not buying it and they're not falling for that. And I think that's why we, for example, saw all of a sudden, oh, now we have to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, <laughs> for example, <laughs> because they're realizing that 
that that method is failing. So they were trying to, oh, well, last resort, let's go to war, you know. Well, you know, you mentioned in the article on, you know, who is involved, uh, like, you know, Ezekiel Manuel, how he is, sure. you know, part of the, you know, Biden COVID task force, which I find interesting, you know, when people, when they're talking about Obamacare, and, you know, they were pretty much talking about death panels uh, with that. It's, it's kind of what they're doing here, and you hear it all the time. Just like, I mean, look what's happening to people who are needing transplants. I mean, they are withholding and taking people off transplant list because they haven't had the vaccination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ezekiel Emanuel um, is one of those people who who uses he uses uh, who's an example of how uh, history doesn't literally repeat itself. His argument when he was medical advisor for the establishment of Obamacare and the panels that where accountants would look at uh, quality adjusted life years and daily adjusted life years and make financial decisions on who should receive care. His his argument at the time was to the medical community, guys, look, it's just cheaper. You can save more money if you don't euthanize people, if you just withdraw care from them and let them die, you know, naturally. And that was his solution to dealing with what, what is a real problem, which is, a massive surge in spending uh, when it comes to uh, medical care. A human approach to that problem would be to revive what we had before the HMO system, which was called the uh, Hill-Burton standard from the late mid-1940s up through the early 1970s, where the focus was on capacity building in the logistics of healthcare hospitals, uh, capacity for beds, the ability to handle a surge like from a pandemic, uh, the training of more doctors and nurses and technicians, expansion of new medical technologies, not the what happened after with the HMO system, the massive increase of bureaucrats and administration pushing papers around. If we actually had a focus on increasing the logistical and technological progress of our medical facilities, we'd be able to handle these problems and we'd be able to actually reduce costs because it would be part of a larger economic boom. But so Ezekiel Emanuel's whole approach has been, well, let's use behavioral economics. Let's use nudging and let's use subtle game theory manipulations to convince people they have a fixed number of choices, which all involve somehow sacrificing. And this is, a, this is actually a, a really important point because if the, the, way, the way that behavioral, behavioral psychology works is it creates, it puts the person who's making the decision into a predetermined set of outcomes and says pick between these, you know, you have two choices. Uh, you can either, for dinner, you can either eat cyanide or you can eat rat poison. And, the, and those are the only options. You know, what your your third option should be, which is to, uh, you know, fire the cook. 
<laughs> but under behavioral <laughs> systems that Ezekiel Manuel will put forward, that the real option, the third one, was never allowed to be discussed. So that's some of the fallacy in the way that they approach these things. But that that whole sort of uh, fait accompli is what we're seeing in the conversation, you know, especially from the left around all this, you know, all the different ways they're trying to, you know, remake the world in their image. Well, and, and part of that, and that we're kind of flipping, but you know, between the different articles, you're, you know, that that we have here, is that sure. you know where you're, you know, you're defining where it says, you know, the psychology uh, to institute a scientific dictatorship, which I really think we're, we're, we're starting to see here, that places the state uh, between children and their families. Uh, and so, you know, now you're, you're talk, they're talking about getting, you know, first of all, it's, you know, older people, and it just keeps getting younger and younger. And then finally, of course, they, they start focusing on uh, the children. Now, I've got my own uh, theories, which I'll, I'll touch on, on, on why they want children to get vaccinated so badly. Uh, now, the article kind of hints that they're trying to, you know, kind of mold them. That's not the term they use, but, you know, just kind of mold sure, the children yeah. to be more compliant and not really think for themselves. I've, I've got my own other theories on that, but. Yeah, so the reference to, to that, so I, I quote extensively from, uh, Bertrand Russell's book, The Impact of Science on Society. And uh, people who are alive today uh, who are under, you know, 75 may not have heard of Bertrand Russell or unless they happen to be, um, you know, math nerds. But uh, this is actually one of the people that you know, Lyndon LaRouche called the most evil men of the 20th century. And he was a British aristocrat who uh, really felt um, he had a fear of missing out. Uh, he had um, homesick nostalgia for the glory days of the British Empire as he saw the transition after World War II when the United States became the hegemonic power in the world. Uh, because of what we did with the arsenal of democracy and the New Deal earlier. So Bertrand Russell was one of those people who um, believed in the need for a socialist world government, a world dictatorship, and unlike H.G. Uh, Wells, who advocated through um, basically uh, – uh, a military dictatorship, and unlike Aldous Huxley, who advocated uh, this through a, a drug dictatorship, pharmacological dictatorship, uh, Bertrand Russell advocated it through the manipulation of science. And we talk about this today. Uh, you, people may have heard of the phrase scientism, where science, like when Fauci said, uh, you know, people attack me because I I, re, I am the science. I represent science. Yeah. So they attack me. Yeah. Right. Very. I mean, what hubris? Yes, I know. But, um, but this is that's the, that's the thing is that like you have a bastardization of what true science actually is. The true science is what uh, Socrates uh, demonstrated, uh, in you know through the Platonic dialogues is a a whittling away of of simple assumptions 
and, and a, an axiomatic assumptions about the nature of the universe to get at uh, actual core principles, universal principles, principles which are not expressed, which, which are expressed in examples, but the example does not fully capture the principle. And uh, has been developed in periods of, of great renaissance uh, all over the world, but most notably in Europe and in the American Revolution. And the American culture, our many problems and limitations, is a renaissance culture implicitly. We always are striving for, for great progress and uh, uncovering of, of new frontiers. And if the, if the, if the method of thinking scientifically is obscured from a pursuit of truth into a belief in authority and its power, then the basis by which human progress is made is actually uh, retarded and, and, and worse. So if you're going to promulgate a philosophy uh, if you be if Bertrand Russell were to promulgate or anyone were to promulgate such a philosophy that they would be among the most evil people to exist because of what they are doing is actually eliminating human progress in in the pursuit of a power structure which could never sustain itself and would eventually collapse by the weight of its own corruption and he was perfectly willing to do that i mean he he called openly for, a, you know, some kind of black death plague to sweep the earth every generation and wipe out extra people. He called for preemptive nuclear war against the Soviet Union at the close of World War II. Uh, I mean, the guy has been a, uh, before he died, he was, you know, quite the rabid environmentalist. I mean, there's, 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 um, it's almost surprising to what extent people felt they could be so open about being so truly evil in the days before uh, the internet, <laughs> but, but here you go. I mean, here you, yeah. you know, here here we see here we see these ideas very clearly and unambiguously stated that uh, the elites should uh, use in his ver in his version of of uh, global dystopian you know world government. You know, they should use uh, the belief in authority masquerading as science to. As you said, as you point out, to separate children from their families and to um, to rule the world. No, I think that. I mean, no, I don't have you know any evidence per se, but I'm sure there's people in the medical field that are looking into it. Where I mean, I think that the fact the reason they want to vaccinate kids is, I mean, I think it's I'm, I'm thinking it's going to prove out in, in the future that there's something in there that's going to affect their, uh, you know, their ability to re, uh, reproduce. Well, so Again, I mean, this that's is a theory on that, my part. But <laughs> well, this is something that um, Dr. Malone talked about on his interview with Joe Rogan uh, a few weeks ago, where the, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel um, considers that uh, Judaism is not simply a religion. It's also a bloodline and an ethnicity. And they were looking at the disruptions in the menstrual cycles of women. And as you probably know, Israel is one of the most heavily vaccinated countries in the world. I think they've had 
multiple booster shots at this point. Yeah, well, it's kind and, of fun, but yeah, that's what I... Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll state up right up front. I'm, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't, you know, I don't have the credentials of Dr. Malone with mRNA vaccine deployment. Um, but I'm just, I, I would direct people to that uh, landmark interview that Joe Rogan did with him where he talked about this, that it's already shown to be disrupting. And, of course, so the, the Orthodox uh, Jewish community is going to be very concerned about this because <laughs> the menstrual cycle is a key part of reproduction, and if you can't reproduce your culture physically in terms of new generations, then you're in a existential crisis. Whether that's well, an yeah, intended that's consequence or if it's simply just a byproduct, you know, I'm not the one to say. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't have the, the expertise either. But just, just again, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, look at the people who are, you know, behind it and support it. I mean, they're all, you know, population control. <laughs> you know, they all want to, you know, you know, control the population. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty obvious at this point. Um, for some, it was obvious earlier, and I think a lot of people are just sort of coming to grips with it, that um, there are people who think that we should reduce the earth to, you know, a billion people. I mean, that's a scale of genocide that uh, is breathtaking. But it is nonetheless uh, a quite a popular idea among a lot of really powerful people. Some of them who have seem to have some sorts of connections through to the vaccine deployments. I think on the on the whole, I you know I would like to state simply that I, you know I think that vaccines are a tried and true long term method of dealing with uh, with diseases. I mean. We look at polio, oh, we look at, the, you know, all these, yeah. yeah, yeah, so, you know, I just want to, but, you know, that's something that people talk about, and there's, there's been a whole grouping of people who have been, who have been anti-all vaccines, and I think that's, that is a, not a good approach, to say the least, but what, what was interesting, from what I've come to learn about the, uh, the mRNA approach is that we're not, we're not, we were not injecting like a dead version of the virus into people so that we create our own natural antibodies to it. What we're doing is we're manipulating what's called a spike protein to cause uh, an immune response. But that is so specific that whenever the virus mutates, uh, we've already made the vaccine obsolete. And these things are mutating to such point that we would basically always be, be behind the curve and actually lowering our immune response as a result. Um, so that's my understanding from the reading of the literature of, of people like Malone and McCullough and others who have, who have been talking about this. I think what we, you know, what, what the whole point to ignore the vast array of other things that go on is part of this corralling of, of society into basically a, a submission. And that's that's a problem because the human spirit actually uh, refuses that. I mean, you, there were always there were always human progress is inevitable because human progress 
scientific thought, true creative scientific thought, is a universal principle. It's a, it's a geological force of the universe. It cannot be extinguished. I mean, it can be slowed down. Empires and dictatorships throughout history have tried to, you know, wipe it out or obfuscate or, or pretend it's not real. But it's an, it's an unstoppable force. It's a natural, uh, naturally occurring principle of the universe. And, I mean, you can just look at the geologic record. Uh, so, you know, this, this, this approach is going to fail. It, it's simply a matter of whether or not it'll, it will take civilization down with it or if people will rally the moral courage to actually overrule it. And I think that's, that's what we actually have to get to in terms of some of our conversations. We have to actually look at what are we, what are we going to do as an organization in society to overrule this minority who, who wants to suppress human nature. And let me go ahead and let me get at this time, get uh, Joseph in here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Joseph, uh, for coming to the show. How are you? We're at the bottom of the hour already, if you can believe that. Are you there, Joseph? Yes, I am so sorry. Uh, I had a, a call that came through. And I should have texted you. I didn't think. Uh, have you been calling my name for quite a while? I hope not. No, just now. <laughs> oh, okay. So I just I just barely made it back. Just barely. Am I correct? <laughs> yep, you're correct. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry about that. Um, so I'm sorry. I, I, I was away for a little bit. I had a, a call. Um, I have our guest that, that's on... Um, are you asking me to give any uh, feedback or? So, yeah, on, on, if you had any questions for what you've uh, heard so far from uh, from Ian so far tonight. Uh, no, not not so far, but I'm going to be listening uh, attentively. And uh, when he finishes up, um, I'll definitely have some questions that I'll uh, be jotting down and asking him. Now, a couple of things, uh, you know, that are going on, and we mentioned earlier uh, about, you know, people being turned down for, uh, you know, saving procedures, you know, such not only getting the monoclonal antibodies, but, I mean, people also are getting, you know, you know taken off donor lists, you know, where they're, they're, they're supposed to receive an organ, and because they're not getting the, the vaccine that they are – you know, they're getting turned down for the for the transplant. Uh, and there's also even, uh, and we'll talk about this rep, Illinois representative that you, you mentioned in the article, Jonathan Carroll. Uh, but, I mean, do you think that these transplant uh, patients who are being denied, you know, th- these organs, I mean, do you think they have any type of civil, repro- you know, recourse against these hospitals? Or, I mean, I mean, basically, I, I they think, are withholding a life-saving procedure from these guys and gals. I absolutely think that they do, but the only problem is for somebody does, that does not have uh, financial means, uh, it's really, really hard to go up against these hospitals who have uh, lawyers, uh, very, very well-paid law firms, uh, very expensive lawyers that are protecting them. And, you know, I'm someone who had an experience with my ex-fiancee um, back in 2020 
where a hospital tried to make her a ward of the state, even though I was the legitimate uh, power of attorney, um, I was successful in getting her back into my custody. And in thinking about suing the hospital, I had to look at the whole picture. A, if I were to do that, I'd have to remain in New York, which that's where she was at the time it happened. B, that would take me away from my job and my income because I'd have to basically stay in the in the city and state where I'm suing them and um, appear to multiple court appearances and see what they do. These hospitals, they have these lawyers, and they're very smart at what they do, even corporate lawyers, and what they'll do is realizing your financial situation, they'll take advantage, and they'll make valid motions for adjournments. So they'll keep on adjourning the actual trial until they know that you know, you're going to be um, – left without a cent left to be able to uh, keep your lawyer retained. And that's what they're banking on. They are, uh, you know, preying on the vulnerable and also playing on the vulnerable who they know don't, don't come from a lot of money or wealth. And so their game is, okay, you're going to hire a lawyer and put it on retainer. Let's see how long that's going to last. And they'll adjourn and they'll adjourn. And basically they'll stretch out the – the case for about two years. In some instances, I've seen a lot of lawsuits where, you know, the other side made excuses to extend it for two years, and the plaintiff just couldn't afford to keep their lawyer. They couldn't afford to carry on. And I think this is a travesty and a miscarriage of justice. And so that's why it's really hard to go up against these hospitals uh, because of the factors I mentioned. Unless you are a person of wealth, and then at that point, it's, it's kind of like you're giving them a taste of their own medicine because you could afford to wait two years. You could afford to hire the best lawyers that money can buy. Uh, you have the luxury of probably not even having to show up at work. So you can uh, you know, go to those um, pretrial hearings. And so that's, that's, that's the big problem with taking on these hospitals. Yeah, I think the best the best alternative to legal in that sense really is going to be publicizing the the going public with it and getting getting the getting what's actually happening in the local areas to to become uh, for everyone to be aware of that, and that's what that's what causes a a moral response. I I completely well, agree. You could take him to the court of public opinion, but here's the problem. Because there's a dime of dozen of these cases, and even far worse cases than this at the height of the pandemic, in the court of public opinion, people just view this as it's already things that they know that the hospitals are capable of doing. Uh, you know, it's not something new or something um, extraordinary or, or, or unique where people will actually pay attention. Most people are like, Oh yeah, another another scam at a hospital, blah blah blah, et cetera. You know, so unfortunately, taking it in the court of public opinion is so hard because there's just so much of a dime a dozen of these cases in different areas of malpractice on behalf of the hospital or malfeasance to where it's no longer new news anymore. It's no longer captivating to the audience, and for as long as it's not captivating to the audience, um, you lose in the court of public opinion. Because you only thrive in the court of public opinion when you have the audience uh, that's on your side. I mean, just just the other day, uh, 
or today or whatever it was, uh, 49 members of Congress, uh, uh, Republicans signed a letter uh, to their leadership saying that uh, we're not going to vote to fund the government when we have these unconstitutional vaccine mandates uh, from the Biden administration. Um, I think we have, I think that is something that is uh, one most latest example of people who are moving against the power structure who are not simply being jaded and cynical. And there's a lot of things like that that are going on. A lot of the conversations that are being had uh, all over the place are reflecting that into our public uh, our public sphere. So I, I would caution people against simply saying um, that it's a that it's so common that we can't do anything. I would I would caution against that. No, no, I I I completely agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, I do think it's it's a case by case. It's not a one size fit all. And I think that's what makes it so complicated in the court of public opinion. Um, you know, if someone is a victim of this, yes, I would urge them to fight in any way that they can where they see they can prevail. Um, as I said, with the legal aspects as to the factors I was mentioning, it's very difficult to try to sue a hospital. Um, but, yeah, you could try to take it to the court of public opinion. But the reality of the matter is unless the shoe is on your foot, in most cases, and unless you've been a victim, most people in the court of public opinion who hasn't, who's been fortunate to not have the shoe on the other foot are just simply going to say, well, our opinion is, yeah, that's a shame, another scandal, uh, but welcome to our healthcare system in the United States. So once again, there has to be something drastic to where the audience is going to start responding in numbers that can actually make a difference. Um, and also at the same time, even though you may prevail in the court of public opinion, uh, it's going to be really hard to prevail in the legal court system for the factors that I've mentioned previously. So it's kind of a slippery slope. It's not easy, but, you know, it's, it's a cruel, cold world, unfortunately. Unless the shoe's on the other foot, you know, most people these days are really not focused on that. They're, they're more focused on uh, economical issues that may be affecting the job market or, or something that's related to them personally that's affecting them. So, you know, I, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, you should continue to fight, but the question is you have to know when, when, it's, when it's best to choose and, 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 and fight your battles or pick and fight your battles. And opinion, you know, you can make your case. Are you really going to get the end result? From a realistic standpoint, well, you're right. You don't know if you don't try. But the thing is, the whole point of the court of public opinion is not for the person who's been victimized to tell their story. They could tell their story all they want, but if it doesn't resonate or connect or captivate the audience of you know millions of people in the court of public opinion, or they're not reciprocating, or they're just basically saying, okay, another scandal oh, well, it is what it is, then basically it makes it really impossible for you to, to get justice even through the court of public opinion. But once again, I want to emphasize, no, that, that, that doesn't mean you should not at least try, but just be aware of what the realistic expectations 
are probably going to be in that case. Yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, I, I tend to agree that simply suing a hospital is probably not the, the wisest way to do it. I think because what we're looking, what we're really trying to talk about here is, you know, here we have an enemy of humanity, which is this this power elite, which is using a number of various ways to try to uh, overturn the Constitution, which is one of the final checks left against some sort of global governance. And we have a we have a system which is pretty bankrupt and pretty rotten and pretty boxed in. It's pretty boxed in because the I mean the whole like you know you may not have heard the beginning but you know the the war on terror is uh, you know basically over uh, the war the COVID is the the fog of COVID was trying to replace that, and that's clearing out, and people aren't buying it. Um, now they're trying to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people who really don't want to go back to war again. Um, so and they're, they're, they're really boxed in, and I think the, this grouping is getting extremely nervous that they're tried and true methods of calling everyone who disagrees with them, you know, white uh, supremacist or whatever is, is not working and we're not being intimidated by that. And we are actually looking for a real solution. And I think that's a really important point is when you have a, a very, you know, seemingly it's, you know, the, the way it's presented and the way it's discussed, you know, even in a lot of conservative media that understands some of this fight is that we're some sort of minority um, that we are, that we are the few who get this. And, you know, we're under this sort of like group of, of, of brainwashed zombies who are the majority just pushing these stupid policies. But I think actually it's the other way around that we, the people are many and they are actually few and they're losing their grip on us. And we have an ability now to, uh, in the military sense, you know, outflank the enemy. And we have to look at, well, what is, what is the weak spot? What is the flank? What is the Achilles heel, you know, of this system? And how do we actually go after that and, and bust it and actually uh, institute a, a, uh, a real economic system that works based on actual sound principles, not arbitrary power or fiat currencies, you know, and I think that's a, a worthy discussion to have. You know, one thing, one of the things I did want to bring up, uh, you know, Ehrlich was mentioned in, in the articles is, and I say one way that I think people are trying to combat this is, there's a state, now it's just a state representative, you know, but, you know, that's just for the state of Illinois, and it mentions Jonathan Carroll, Democrat, of course, uh, who is, you know, filing legislation to try to prohibit, you know, medical insurers from covering the cost of those who didn't receive the vaccine. Now, there is, a, we had a Diana Smith on some weeks ago, and she was heading up an effort uh, in Ohio, uh, for it's called House Bill 248. What it's supposed to do 
is supposed to basically prohibit you know, discrimination of all kinds, you know, from companies and governments, uh, you know, for people who are unvaccinated. Uh, we had uh, her on uh, some weeks ago talk more about that, and I, I think that's uh, what it is that they try to get uh, the house, you know, House Bill 248 in front of, you know, the state representative there in Ohio, but they kept hem hauling around and not really doing much with it. So they thought, well, let's try to get this in front of the people uh, to try to get it on, you know, the state ballot. And, you know, I think more people should try to, you know, pick up and, and start initiatives like that because uh, I think it's going to have to come to that because I, we can't really rely on, I don't think we can rely on our so-called representatives uh, to really, you know, do anything about this. But, but go ahead, Ian. I just want to, to get that point out. Uh, sure. You know, I mean, um, the Car- Carroll's legislation, he pulled his bill just a few days after because of the public backlash. He gave interviews where he said, you know, he's scared because, uh, you know, white supremacists have called his office threatening him and comparing him to, you know, Nazis. Uh, but he's, but he says that, you know, those of us who are, who are vaccinated, you know, we've spent, millions of dollars on treatment for the unvaccinated and, and honestly we're very frustrated about that that was his yeah that was his argument right and if you go back to 1934 uh dr gerhard wagner leader of the nazi doctors group he spoke before the national socialist party congress and he said quote the economic burden represented by people suffering from hereditary diseases the danger for the state and for society in all, it is necessary to spend 301 million Reichsmarks per year for their treatment, without counting for the expenditures for 200,000 drunkards and about 400,000 psychopaths. The Nazi textbooks, uh, like Mathematics in the Service of National Political Education, they were introduced into the Nazi public schools, featured questions such as, quote, if the building of a lunatic asylum costs 6 million marks and it costs 15,000 marks to build each dwelling on a housing estate, how many of the latter could be built for the price of one asylum? Also, quote, if an insane person costs about four Reichsmarks, a cripple five and a half, a criminal three and a half, in many cases a civil servant earns daily only about four Reichsmarks, an employee scarcely three and a half, and an uneducated person not even two, Analyze these figures, again, we're talking about math textbooks, analyze these figures based on the fact that there are um, 300,000 mental patients institutionalized in Germany today, back in the 1930s, on the basis of four Reichsmarks per day, what's their total cost per year, and how many marriage loans of 1,000 Reichsmarks each could be issued with this money. So they're in their public school math textbooks, they're giving uh, examples of uh, Carol's argument that, you know, instead of wasting money on these useless eaters, we should be putting it towards things that are uh, useful for society. So when he gets all hurt about uh, being told, well, I was compared to a Nazi for saying we shouldn't give care to people, that's mean. I mean, the guy's just ignorant of history. This is not a. This is. You, know, <laughs> you just got to know your. You just got to know your history, and and these sorts of things are out there. So it's not even like 
it's not even like this is new news or something. Um, we have to be able to draw that historical line from the precedent to the present so that we do not allow ourselves to go down this road. And we cannot allow ourselves to be shamed by the, you know, the screaming banshees on the left who say, you know, if you talk about uh, World War II in any way, that means you're demeaning six million Jewish murders. And that's just, I mean, that's just um, a logical fallacy, and it's meant to embarrass and silence actual conversation about actual history. Uh, in no way does it demean the death of the Holocaust to talk about how we got there. In fact, what we're doing is we're protecting people against another Holocaust, a future one, uh, whatever form it may take of simply denying and rationing care or maybe something even more extreme. We, you know, we don't want to find out how far that road goes. And that's why it's really critical that we uh, speak eloquently about the precedents that we face in history so that we do not allow ourselves to go down that road. I completely agree. And what I fear, what I fear is that a lot of people have not learned the lessons from World War II. They're repeating history again. And that is what is destroying our country. Just the other day, Whoopi Goldberg made a very offensive remark uh, about the Holocaust. Now, I'm going to be honest. Do I think she should have been suspended from ABC? No, I don't. But is there a double standard between her or imagine if it would have happened to Tucker Carlson? Forget it. You'd have the left and every think tank and activist and organization, you know, calling for the beheading of Tucker Carlson, the removal of Tucker Carlson. But because this happened to Whoopi Goldberg, who's uh, a progressive, instead today the media at CNN defended her. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And this is the proverbial double standard. It's ridiculous. And what I fear the most is that one political party, and I'm not trying to politicize this whatsoever, but by the facts, one political party – has not learned anything from World War II. If anything, they are repeating history, and that's very scary. That is extremely scary. I mean, that gives me goosebumps all over. And the fact that it's happening on our soil, because World War II luckily was never fought on American territory. It was fought in Europe, and it was fought in Asia. So, yes, yeah, that, that, that's Pearl Harbor, really scary, right, yeah. but I Correct. So I couldn't agree with you more completely on your um, example and analogy about World War II. And sadly, I wish I could say, but the truth is, no, I I don't think a lot of people have learned um, from the mistakes of the past. And that's a shame because a lot of soldiers, a lot of people in the military, a lot of patriot Americans gave their lives so that they could win World War II to prevent a world-dominant power from the Nazis or the Japanese, and I'll defer back to you. Well, we got you know, someone in, in our chat here mentioned, you know, World War II, you know, bringing Envoy in the, uh, in the chat, uh, so mentioned, you know, World War II was 70 years ago, 
And, you know, our edu- they didn't bring this up, but, you know, they have no idea about what, you know, World War II was really, you know, really like, really about. Um, you just think of uh, the stories we we may have heard by our, you know, our parents or grandparents about it. Uh, the generation today probably did not have that experience. And you certainly don't uh, think that, you know, at least in the public school system, uh, they're teaching much of this type of stuff uh, in our public schools today. Yeah, I mean, uh, more or less history according to a critical race theory or Howard Zinn and, or the Hillsdale uh, College, you, it, it's often reduced to a set of slogans or, you know, real simplistic black and white uh, interpretations of history like, you know, white versus black, uh, oppressor versus oppressed, uh, free market versus socialism. And real history is far more nuanced than these things. And it's it's critical that we get into, uh, you know, conversations when we, you know, when we talk about economy and science, how we can develop the future here, not just um, not just respond to the past and not just respond to current events, but actually have a positive future-oriented view of what humanity must become, you know, on its own terms, you know, not just in reaction to, to evil. That's why I was saying earlier that you know that yeah. human that human uh, creativity that is a geological force. I mean that's a scientific fact that, that it, it's inextinguishable. Human progress, scientific thought, and and creative the creative drive is inextinguishable. That's why people sing in slavery because because they're going to be free, and we are. We're at a moment where the the drive for scientific dictatorship is, and global dictatorship is, um, I think, that, that that wicked witch is melting. I think we have a real opportunity here um, to seize the day and 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 catapult ourselves into a, a better future. Well, one of the uh, one of the articles uh, I, I wish I would have had more of a chance to. to more, I think it was more of a video uh, that I have here than than an article of yours. And I want to talk uh, briefly. I mean, and you said you only have about an hour, so we're, we're unfortunately coming up on that already. It's amazing how how fast an hour goes on the program. But um, you know, you, you have a, a two part series uh, there on the you know the It says how to create American Renaissance. You kind of want to give us a synopsis uh, uh, of that. You know, there's two parts. Uh, you know, that that'd be great. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, synopsis. Kind of a okay, so like, like yeah, like preview <laughs> movies. But <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So um, in the first, so this um, this two part video series is from like a month or two ago, and in the first one, I go after the the cult of pop of pop music and pop culture and how how the people who did, who were the precursors to critical race theory which is the the Frankfurt school uh of critical theory uh people like Theodore Adorno 
And there's other people in that school who are a little bit more well-known, like Herbert Marcuse, but there's also people like Theodore Adorno and uh, Martin Heidegger. And you have these existentialists basically to attack Western civilization and attack the idea that truth is knowable and anyone who wields a true principle is actually an authoritarian like Hitler. That was their view. And they looked at the goal, and, and especially Theodore Adorno, looked at the goals of modern music as uh, as a form of slavery, and um, that the and and he celebrated that because he saw Western civilization as evil, right? And so, uh, but at the same time, in the sense of modern music and pop culture, he was actually not wrong. And so I was using a, it was a useful foil, the tragedy that happened at Astro World when Travis Scott was there and people, you know, got trampled to death. Uh, it was a very horrible tragedy. Um, but how, how is it that um, you have a society? So let's, let's take, for example, what I consider to be um, one that nurtures the ability of an individual person to think and reason beyond the limitations of sense certainty. Um, that as human beings, we're not simply limited by, you know, the so-called five senses and our ability to understand the universe around us. We have higher faculties. We understand that there are sounds outside of our hearing range, that there are colors outside of our sight range, that there are pressures outside of our touch range and temperatures outside of that that and we can develop uh, scientific technologies like space instruments microscopes telescopes right to look into the very small to look into the very large and we can discover actual organizing principles physical principles that organize the universe into existence and and we can develop uh, and mastery of those so in the first class on those two videos, I take up that question of music and I look at how the harmonic proportions of a string actually are reflected in the, um, the motions of the planets as a solar system and how uh, Johannes Kepler discovered this. And so, and I give an example uh, in there of, uh, from Mozart uh, of a musical idea as something, and, and an actual idea is something where we're contrasting different intangible or non-sensible um, concepts, such as how you could hear, you know, the, hear, quote-unquote, the motions of the planets and develop a better star chart to navigate the oceans from that. That's an idea which is not rooted in a literal sense observation of astronomy, but Kepler developed it. And the kind of culture which can develop those kinds of pretty impressive firing ideas is not found in rap songs about sex and drugs or 
uh, pop songs about sex and drugs or country songs about sex and drugs or even folk songs. You know, it, it's found in a higher quality of music and a higher conception of mankind reflected in that. Uh, I can go right into the second class I have, or if you want to discuss that a little bit, we can pause and discuss that first. Uh, did you want to make a comment on that? I'll give you the floor first, uh, Joseph, and then I've, I'll, I'll do so. Go ahead. Sure. I think creativity is a very, very important uh, quality to have. Um, I think that's how new technology and new ideas and new innovations come about, and um, that's all I wanted to say on that end. Um you know, you haven't lived unless you've tried to have created something, something positive, something for the for the better, not for the worse. Amen. Uh, so, I mean, Robert, do you have something, or should I go into the other part? Well, well, yeah. I mean, just to make a comment, you know, how you know, music is. I mean, music was used to be used to also, you know, hand down history, uh, you know, and. Well, you know, the oral traditions, you know, I mean, it's actually really popular in the, you know, the, the Keltoid civilizations where they use music uh, to, to hand down stories and, and to motivate people. I mean, they'd have music going into battle, you know, <laughs> you know, that, you know whether it's drums right. or, you know, you know, pipes or what have you. So music could certainly be used as a, as a motivator and actually to, you know, I, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but, you know, to... You know, like, well, that's the only word I can think of right now. Someone's mood, uh, really. Uh, you know, and then I mean, it'd be nice to hear you know more lyrics towards you know the betterment of the human condition. But you know, with, I don't know how you could do it with technology. I'm a big uh, you know technology, especially like you know nuclear fusion and you know space travel and things of that nature. Um, you know, con- you know space colonization. I don't know if you can make lyrics to motivate people to do stuff like that, but um, you know, to get people to pay more attention. I, I think that's one of the biggest follies uh, that we don't see anymore. Uh, we really don't see, uh, you know, you know, see, I think, that, that public uh, excitement, you know, for, you know, going, you know, back into space or, or, or the, the, the first time to the moon, whichever side of that ledger you're on. Um, because I just sure. don't think it's in the public square enough, both, both so, media you, and entertainment, you, you frankly. Have more to- you have motivating music even when politicians are before they're going to come up to the podium to make a speech or maybe on victory night when, you know, they know they have won uh, an election. You'll, you'll also have a lot of um, inspiring victory music. Um, I think music can be channeled in so many ways. I, I'm, I'm someone who – I'm a fanatic when it comes to music. My two favorite things – my three favorite things in life, politics, music, and movies – and as the old saying goes, music soothes the beast. But I, I think music is such a powerful arsenal in just so many spectrums. Uh, YouTube is so popular because you could basically go to YouTube, type in a song that was even, you know, sung by a group way before I was even born, uh, and you're actually able to pull it up or even pull up the lyrics or uh, pull up the uh, music videos. So YouTube is also a, a great. Um, Outlet to do that, and that's all. That's all I wanted to add on that um, on that subject matter. Sure. No, it's just, it's let me let me introduce something here, part. if I could. No, well, let me let me let me introduce uh, something on that. So, go ahead. 
when I was when I was younger, I mean, I was really into um, I was really into heavy metal, actually, um, and oh, electronic and, and electronic music, and you know, I listened to a lot. I, when I went into college, I really broadened my uh, my uh, into the the New York rap scene and a lot of folks uh, oh, wow. were were deeper into some of this stuff and also some of the West Coast. And I'd say one of the things that's really interesting about the degeneracy in the music today compared and the and the use of tension. Okay. Uh, it's 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 very obvious, you know, when you're talking about say, you know, um the Deftones or Marilyn Manson or some of these more well known groups where there, the the anger that's that's being expressed in the music or other emotions, uh, it's unresolved. It's just there. It's it's not developed or resolved in any lawful way. And then you compare that to say uh, Mozart's Dissonance Quartet or Beethoven's Great Fugue or elements from um, The Passions by Bach. And what we have in these examples is, uh, I mean, especially when you talk about modern rap, I mean, you just have like a looped track and there's not even any real music. And when they're singing, their so-called singing is auto-tuned and it's, you know, two or three pitches repeated over and over and over, more or less yelling words or whatever it is. But, you know, the in those in these other examples, the artists are. I'm going to assume we have basic musical performance literacy about what a key signature is and things like that. In in the development of a musical idea, which is basically just say a phrase, um, maybe a simple melodic line. Uh, you will find that there's there's built-in things that sound consonant because certain notes and pitches are within the key signature, and then there's also uh, harmonies that sound like they don't belong there. And really great composers will introduce dissonances into they'll introduce notes that are not within the key signature which cause, which build tension. And if they're able to do this in a way where they can, where the, the, the tensions that are introduced eventually are shown like a plot twist to actually resolve into a higher or more developed harmony, then what you're doing in the course of exposing yourself to such music is you're educating your emotions. You're able to educate your emotions to deal with tension. And the music is showing you a way to resolve the plot twists of the music into a more beautiful existence. And I contrast that with modern music, which really just, I mean, it's everywhere. The, the you know in the lyrics you know how much music from the 80s is about codependent relationships 
<laughs> falling in love and falling out of love over and over and over again. Uh, or the '90s, the music that's just I'm a loser. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a teenage I'm a teen spirit. All this stuff from after uh, 9/11, where it you know burned the system down, and um, <laughs> you know everything. Everyone from Talib Kweli to Slayer is talking about the same stuff. Effectively, <laughs> you know, shut it down. Uh, very existential, and there's no. Uh, even a lot of the woke stuff um, where they're really trying to tell you, like, do you see how you're being controlled here, uh, whether it's, you know, common or a system of a down, they're not actually giving you a way out. And that's what's different about Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and the real classical composers is that they give you a way out of the tension, which is actually resolved in a beautiful way. And you look at the operas from Mozart uh, and, you know, Beethoven's opera, and they're, they're dealing with people who are, who are uh, standing up against true evil in the name of, of human progress. And the evil people are getting there, you know, the, 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 the dictators of their day, like Don Giovanni and so forth, you know, they're getting their just rewards, which is to be taken from power by, you know, divine justice. And, and and so there's a, a true a true education of the emotions in this type of culture that is notoriously absent across the range of modern music. And in my class, I you know I abbreviate this uh, considerably for for the you know the sake of time, but but it's there. I encourage people to watch it. And I think that's a, a really important thing that we have to we have to attack the the backwardness in our culture with you know with this with this higher conception of humanity. If I may ask, sir, are you opposed to music that would have lyrics with profanity or lyrics that um, that promote violence uh, in any way, shape, or form? Uh, you know, not necessarily. It sort of just depends on the context and what it's doing. <laughs> I only say that because you mentioned well, the music. Only... No, Sorry, what? Apologies. No, I only mention it because um, I, I do listen to a lot of modern music and R&B, and some of them are not the cleanest language, but, you know, I'm a I'm a proponent that doesn't believe that they should be censored just because the language isn't exactly what others would deem to be acceptable. I, th I think that, you know, censoring that, as you could see today, even in politics, you know, trying to censor someone for not agreeing with with their views is a, is a very dangerous uh, Pandora's box to open, and I don't think that that should mm -hmm. uh, be opened in the music industry. However, I, I would say if you don't like the music or the profanity, just simply don't listen to it. But my view is, but don't impose your belief upon me because you're not tolerant. Don't tell me that I'm listening to the devil's music because it has words that are profane or, you know, if you kind of get what I what I mean, you know, let let leave that up mm -hmm. to yeah, no, I totally get you persons. Mean. Yeah, I, I don't think we should just uh, censor bad music because I don't think that's the way to fix the problem. 
of course, let's let's be real. Um, this music is actually being imposed on us. And as I, as as Theodore Adorno uh, pointed out very clearly, uh, the goal is actually to immobilize society against uh, being able to. Uh, to <laughs> so I mean I, I encourage people to look at, at the the notes from his book that I quote in the movie, but in the in the uh, video. But no, simply censoring it. You know I don't. You know I, personally I don't want to have to go celebrate a loved one's birthday and be forced to listen to Nickelback piped in saying I'm not a perfect person and I always mess up and you know that's you you don't have a choice about that depending on the restaurant you go to honestly or the grocery store and the different you know subtle things that are done with that Um, but here's you know here's the thing like rather than just censoring um, the modern degenerate music we have which is forced on us pretty much everywhere we go in society. What we really need to do is we need to recruit people to a better culture. And that's really where I'm talking about is, you know, the, the profound quality of human creativity and the music that develops a society which is capable of, of genius, uh, which fosters, dozens and dozens of Einsteins and Dr. Kings, you know, everywhere. Um, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, one of, one of the, um, one of the most controversial and yet true points is that not all cultures are equal and some cultures are actually better than other cultures. And, and you can look at history in this sense. No one is going to argue that the Nazi culture is better than others, <laughs> you know, like the Renaissance cultures. So, I mean, I mean, I suppose some, some people might argue that, but, you know, whatever. Um, there was a really good example of this when, uh, when Friedrich Schiller looked at the difference between, you know, classical Athens, which generated Renaissance figures like Plato and Socrates, and Sparta, which could not generate such minds. Okay, and that's that's a, that's an important question we should discuss because if we're going to say, well, my opinion is my opinion, and you know you have no right to tell me that my opinion might actually be bad for me, well, then how are we ever going to move forward as a society? I mean, that doesn't mean I'm going to like, you know, we shouldn't kill each other <laughs> like like the left is trying to do. We shouldn't like, you know. Uh, call anyone who disagrees with us, uh, you know, a racist, white Nazi supremacist, and all these other horrible things, a Russian, you know, Putin out, clone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but like, let's actually let's actually realize that you know, if we're going to improve human progress, certain types of cultures that are foisted on us in the modern era are actually bad for us. Not just among the uh, so-called like the. Uh, the more obvious ones, the more venomous ones, like critical race theory. Well, or vaccine songs, dictatorship. You, you mentioned earlier this, uh, the opening song. I mean, I've, been, I've been using the opening song here um, since the beginning of the show in 2012. And uh, when the show started, you know, we were really, you know, any, you know, no Romney. We were, you know, the show opened up with actually being 
uh, a podcast to support the campaign of Newt Gingrich when he was running for president in 2012 uh, during the primary. That's, that's actually what began uh, the show. And uh, not, you know, I won't go into all the different details, you know, but but, but that's what, sure. what the show started. And actually, the, the opening song was a video uh, that had, you know, you know, news campaign and things of that nature. Because uh, he was considered, a, you know, kind of an underdog. I mean, he did end up taking second place, so to speak, uh, in the campaign. Uh, but, uh, you know, just that's where the the song came from as a video, uh, you know, that was, you know, showing, new, you know, new to different places and things of that nature. I mean, it, it kind of stuck. But I have found, I mean, especially what we're going now, if, if you listen to the full lyrics uh, of the song, it, I mean, I, it really plays out to – you know, to today, or really, like, yeah, we, I mean, we're, you know, we do feel like even though we are at least half, if not the majority, our voices aren't being heard. Uh, we're being, you know, somehow uh, the the voices of the minority are, you know, are, are out uh, outweighing uh, the majority. And I, and I think it's because we're too quiet. <laughs> you know, I do. I, I think that, you we're, know, we're, yeah, we're, sure. The, the silent majority, as they, as they like to say. In in the uh, in Bertrand Russell's book on the impact of science in society, when he talks about creating a global uh, you know scientific dictatorship, a global dictatorship that controls the definition of science, one of the uh, most you know infamous quotes is where he talks about the, it's up to social psychology and social scientists of the future to figure out how much it costs to convince uh, children in the schoolroom that snow is black and how much less it would cost to convince them that it is just simply dark gray. And one of the four points he lays out very clearly is that uh, he says not much can be done if indoctrination starts after the age of 10, uh, that religion plays a useful but diminishing role that the influence of the home is very um, disruptive and that uh, uh, basically if you uh, take a phrase and set it to music and repeatedly intone it, that this is a very effective form of brainwashing. And when you look at the messages that are pervasive through every type of popular music today, it it really focuses a lot on sex, <laughs> focuses a lot on drugs, focuses a lot on money and power, and and of all those things, it's about having them or not having them. And you know, there's really a at some point you have to ask yourself who's who's choosing to make these things popular, who's who's promoting this stuff and saying, oh yeah, this is this is totally the next best hit. And, yeah, and that I reminds think me of, real, yeah. real quick. I want to bring it before I, I, I lose the opportunity to. Um, as you uh-huh. mentioned, that you know, you take a, a phrase or a lyric and you just say it over and over again. It reminded me of a time when uh, my mom took a tape right out of the tape player because I'm a child of the '80s myself. I was in high school yeah. in the '80s. Which, which yeah. took the tape straight, another, straight from my tape recorder or boombox or whatever and threw the tape away and said, Rob, and so you, you might know what I'm referring to, but and we'll, 
I'll, I'll reveal this because Rob, love isn't a bitch. You know who, who sang that? <laughs> my favorite band, one of my favorite bands, my favorite band in high school was Quiet Riot. And uh-huh. one of their songs was, was Love's a Bitch, and they kept repeating it. Love's a bitch, 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 baby. And my mom's like, she heard that, she uh-huh. was like, gasp. And she takes this, this, this tape right out of my boombox, throws it away, and says, Rob, you know, Robbie, they call me back. No, it was not, not that was when I was younger, but Rob, love is not a bitch. So <laughs> now yeah. you've explained yeah, to me right. why, you know, they take one lyric and repeat it. <laughs> sure. You know, it's true, but at the same time, it, why did why do these why does these lyrics stick in our heads? It's so hard. Like it, it's amazing. I mean, they're they're songs that music today has basically been reduced to jingle, in much in much of uh, what's especially what's played on the radio. I mean, my goodness. A B C D E I'm F U. Gonna... I mean, give me a break, right? Like it's just, this stuff is just pounded upon your head, and you're just trying. I mean, I'm just trying to go have fun with my friends going bowling, and we're and we're hearing <laughs> songs about F U this, F U that. That's that's just part of that's just that's just going to the bowling alley, guys. I mean, like, what? You got a problem with with that? <laughs> but but that's but that's that would have been, of course, completely unthinkable. Um, even you know, forty years ago in the eighties, compared to what we have today, it's it's pretty impressive. But what the the ironic thing, even when you're even when you're producing this stuff as an artist, when you're engaged in, you know, singing in a chorus or performing in an orchestra or in an opera, the the lyrics, the lyricism of the music of Mozart or Bach or Beethoven or Schubert or some of these other real, you know, classically oriented composers, composers that are focusing, not classical as an era, but classical as a, as a as a quality, uh, their their music doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't loop and brainwash you the same way. It's, it's not stuck there the same way. There's a different effect, a higher quality of effect. I mean, to be honest, this was a very popular debate and subject matter when I was growing up in the '90s. That's when a lot of the rap music started to become very popular and. You had people debating about the language and, uh, you know, the deterioration of American moral values. I mean, I could only speak for myself, but I can't help it. If a song is great, it has a great rhythm, I'll listen to it. If it has profanity, it really doesn't bother me, but it's never swayed me in the wrong direction or, you know, it, it, it didn't give a cause and effect of me uh, doing something um, bad or harm to others or harm to myself or put me on the wrong track in society. Uh, so I really think at the end of the day, it really comes down to free will. I mean, are you easily brainwashed, or can you listen to, uh, you know, uh, Busta Rhymes, you know, a song from the early 2000s, or Missy Elliott, or Eminem? Can you handle the profanity? And I'd say yes. It's it's a individual-based decision. Um, but I don't. I don't think that's what's causing the decline um, in in the in the American home and and home values. I really don't think it's the music at all. I think it's a lot of 
uh, what what plays into the education, um, the violence that that goes on on an ongoing basis in the public school system. Um, I think there are a lot of factors, but I honestly don't think it's um, anything to do with the lyrics. And being that we're on that topic, I can't remember what state it was in today, but uh, one elementary school teacher lined up three different races of kids. I think it was white, brown, and black. And then she had the white person walk up to the black student or the brown student and have them apologize for what their ancestors did. Now, that mom went to the school board meeting, God bless her soul, and she said, shame on you. What you're doing is segregation. How could you do this? How could you corrupt our children? You teachers are supposed to educate them and inspire them, not brainwash them. How dare you make my daughter line up like she was a criminal because of the color of her skin or white privilege is what the teacher called it. How dare you make her go and be demeaned and demoralize her by apologizing to another race? That is segregation. And when I heard that, oh, geez, I was livid. I'm like, if our country has come to that, to be honest, I think the lyrics in today's songs is the least of our worries. I think it's this critical race theory garbage, and I think it's the decline in the public school educational system overall. And I'll say one more thing, and then I'll give it back to you. Per capita, the United States spend more on education than any other country, but yet when it comes to math and English, we rank in the lowest percentiles. Please tell me how that is even possible. And I'll defer back to you, either to our guests or, or to our host. Well, I'm gonna make, well, I'm going to make one comment, and then I'll bring it back to you, Ian. Is that, I mean, sure. I, I personally, I do think, personally, I do think the lyrics uh, can cause an effect on the young mind. Now, I don't think it's going to affect you, uh, you know, because I, you were educated differently than our, than our youth is today. Um, and personally, I do think that a lot of your kids don't have, um, you know, the educational or maybe even sophisticated background that you probably have, Joseph, uh, to be able to differentiate between, oh, these are just lyrics to, hey, these lyrics, you know, you know mean something and, and maybe we should act on them. But uh, I, mean, I, I think, I think you just, you, your intellect and sophistication has a lot to do with that, Joseph, of not being uh, – being able to be manipulated. And unfortunately, I think the young minds today, and maybe even some of the older minds, uh, are, 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 for whatever reason, much more uh, open to manipulation than they used to be. Go ahead, Ian. Sure. I think it's – well, first off, I don't know why anyone in particular would want to listen to, you know, Eminem talking about throwing his wife into a trunk and driving her off a bridge and drowning her. But, you know, I mean, whatever, right? Or – there's a lot of examples we can pull out of like some pretty messed up stuff that they talk hey, about. I, I don't it, understand. I don't, I, I don't understand the music that vibrates. I don't understand the music that vibrates my windows when someone else is playing it in the next car. But anyway, <laughs> sure, you know. But I mean, so it, I, I think this actually leads into the point of my uh, my second class that I had given that we originally started the conversation. I think it's been a great conversation about music, but I don't want to just end it just yet because I don't, I don't think we're, I, I don't think we, when we're talking about a cultural principle, I don't think we can reduce it to one particular 
expression like the lyrics. Although I think it's pretty clear that as a society, we have degenerated uh, quite a bit compared to how we were, uh, you know, two or three generations ago, and not just in our music. Where, and it's not especially not just in the lyrics of the music. My choral director, I sing in a community choir. Our, you know, from Prairie View A and M, he was he was he got his music credentialing uh, there, and they did an experiment with uh, rats, lab rats, and a maze, and they were subjecting lab rats to uh, Mozart, to jazz, and to rock and roll. And they were timing how they improved or didn't improve through the maze. And the rats who were listening to Mozart had the best improvement of time. The rats who listened to jazz had a modest improvement in time. And the rats that listened to the rock and roll had a much, much, much worse decline in time when they were done with the experiments and they were taking the rats back to wherever they keep rats when they're not being subjected to experiments, the heavy metal rats, uh, you know, ate each other. It's not in the lyrics alone. Rats don't understand lyrics. It's not the point. There's something in the ability in in a musical composition to elevate or degenerate. And we talk about the Mozart effect of, playing it to unborn babies in the womb, right? So there's all kinds of examples here. I think as a society, uh, it's not just in our music. I think it's in a lot of different institutions, which includes education. And I think what you're, the point you're making, for example, there, sir, about uh, critical race theory is, in a great, is a great example of the degeneracy uh, expressed in that way. And I think what we should do is instead of um, – Right. We should we should we should take some of that up. So, uh, I, you know, unless there's an objection, I'll you know, I'll roll into my other point there, which was that. So when we talk about so that was my my first original class was describing this approach of a concept of a principle in culture. And uh, the second one was looking at how to, at the same question from the standpoint of science and comparing logical systems with actual uh, physical systems and how that eventually will get, if we get to that point, manifest in a conversation about economy, human, the economy of human labor and uh, development and a republic. But um, here's a, so here's the thing. When we talk about logical systems, you have people who've made very, very sophisticated logical explanations of maybe the entire world. I mean, you see that in video games, for example, very sophisticated logical systems where they're able to produce an entire, you know, universe, like, you know, World of Warcraft type universe, or there's all these rules of physics and operating, and you have all these things going on, all these storylines and all these choices that go here and there and so forth. And we talked earlier about, you know, the behavioral economists who use nudges and game theory to 
uh, nudge society in certain directions. Those are also logical systems. And uh, Bertrand Russell, in addition to uh, trying to convince children that snow is black and the state should rule the universe, uh, also developed an, an incredibly uh, sophisticated early attempt at, a, at describing the universe and reducing the universe to a logical system in his Principia Mathematica. And uh, when, when, one of the problems here is that every logical system, uh, no matter how complex, it starts from the standpoint of certain basic assumptions. And, and those assumptions give rise to all the choices within the system and all the rules within the system and all the things that are considered to be true. And one of the things that Einstein points out, the very first thing he, he points out in his, in his book on relativity, is that, well, is something true because it's consistent with the rules of the system? Or is it true because you can actually physically prove it? because you can show that it, it works. And that's the difference between a, a logical definition of science, which we would call scientism, and what is happening today is that the, 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 uh, the people who are pushing for you know, dictatorship through vaccines or whatever, uh, you know, that's why they don't care that, that their system is so obviously hypocritical. Well, you know, you have to wear a mask, but I don't have to. And, you know, you, can, you have to do these things, but I can flaunt the rules, that kind of stuff that goes on. Or um, it's because at this point their system is, is so obviously corrupt that they're just flaunting power and seeing if we'll, we'll succumb to it. But and I real couldn't science, agree with you more. I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. Well said. And I have something that came out today that's going to validate everything you're saying of how corrupt. A study came out by John Hopkins University that said that less than 2% of COVID deaths were, yes. were less than that. 2% yeah. of COVID deaths um, were not due to the lockdowns, meaning that the lockdown measures did uh, not cause uh, millions of people to die because of, of the lockdown measures. So basically what I'm trying to say is Fauci said in 2020, oh, if we don't lock down the economy, we're going to have millions of deaths, and we're going to have millions of deaths all over the globe. John Hopkins just came out and stated, despite the lockdown measures, there was only less than a 2% COVID death rate. So basically, they're proving with science, and I'm glad that you brought up the science, that the lockdown measures didn't stop or prevent a lot of people who died due to COVID. Less than 2%, that's a sliver. So that's a validation of what you're saying, of how corrupt it is and how our politicians have used uh, the excuse of COVID to exert their or, and abuse their powers. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, that came out today, and that, that really was – it really attributes to everything that you're saying. I'm really glad that Robert was able to get you on the show because um, everything you're saying is very insightful, but it's very relevant to what's going on in today. And so basically, John Hopkins is saying the lockdown measures should have never happened. The country should have never shut down. There was no reason yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I mean, not only, not only did, it, did, did lockdowns not reduce the death rate, but when you had lockdowns combined with shelter in place, 
they actually increase the death rate. Because <laughs> you stuff people in their homes and you don't let them outside to go breathe and enjoy the sunshine, you know. And so it actually right. – so, so they're – yeah, it actually increased the death rate. Which Maybe is that something that doesn't surprise me because per- personally I think that's what they wanted in the first place because when – especially in 2020 – when they wanted the death rise, the, the, the death cases to rise so high because the media or AKA the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party could use that as a bludgeon against the Trump campaign because I think they politicized COVID and wanted to have as many deaths as possible so they could try to blame it on Trump. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. I mean, it, I think it's pretty clear that. Um, you know, I like so. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit beyond the the, the proven to surmise a few things, um, which is that more than likely the I think I think we're pretty much at the break point where we we can all sort of agree that the the Wuhan lab created the gain of function uh, funded through. Um, Fauci, the NIH, and um, whatever that other institution was, um, to to cause the the gain of function to happen. Now, whether or not it was released on purpose, or whether or not it was, you know, sloppy security protocols, I don't know. But it was pretty clear pretty soon that Trump's economy prior to COVID was really doing well, even though it hadn't taken on the Federal Reserve quite the right way. It had really uh, developed into a full American system like he had campaigned for yet. Um, But, and then his response under Operation Warp Speed was, was undermining the, the, um, the world is ending uh, approach. And it quickly became political again uh, it was pretty clear that, that that was, you know, whether or not it was, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure, but whether or not it was it was intentionally developed and released for reasons like that, um, it certainly became used that way in political effect. Oh, yeah. I know. I agree. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, no, I speculate. Thing. Yeah, I speculate that. Well, I speculate that they've been working on it for a long time. Now, the release, I'm thinking perhaps. I mean, wasn't there like Project uh, Project 19 or something of that nature that kind of pre- that was predicting COVID? I mean, even didn't Fauci himself say, "Oh yeah, the you know Trump's going to experience a," or somebody said, I can't remember who, but said that Trump's going to experience a pandemic uh, event. You know, so those kind of things being said, you know, gives you pause to think that maybe sure. that at least. The timing, it could have been purposely released. Cause we, look, at I mean, they tried everything to try to hurt Trump from being reelected. I mean, they tried, they impeached him twice. They called him every name under the book, racist, sexist, you know, misogynist, you know. It's, you know, he still is looking poised to win. And, you know, the economy, as you stated, was doing well. Uh, and and you know, for every demographic, according to the reports, and he, so he was purged to win again. I mean, they had to do something. I really think that if, if it wasn't purposely done, it was certainly, as you said, and used, uh, again, as a bludgeon against his campaign. I mean, look at me. I mean, they were reporting every – notice how quiet the so-called media uh, has gotten 
since uh, Biden was installed into the White House, uh, start occup- it became the occupier of the White House on the deaths. I mean, deaths have, you know, from COVID have, you know, are, are more in 2021 or were more in 2021 than 2020. Now, do you hear a, a death count report every single day as you did during the Trump uh, administration? No, they don't count those, well, uh, those numbers every day. They're doing it every single day, sometimes multiple a day. You know, and making people treat it as if all oh, this blood's on Trump's hands. Exactly. So what I want to do, if it's possible, Robert and our guest, I'd like if you ha- if you can, what is your theory about COVID nineteen? If it was uh, intentional or not, I'll give you mine really quickly so I could get your feedback. I honestly don't believe it was done intentionally, and I'll tell you why. I look at it from a logistic, logical standpoint. China has spent the last 60 years in building their military and building their economy. So now, they're, now they have the second most powerful economy in the world and one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Now, after all that work and effort, we know China's game here is they want to be num- number one. They want to have the most powerful economy in the world and the most powerful military in the world. So would it make sense for their government to undermine over 60 years of working to get close to that and sabotage their own economy and their own communist regime? I don't think so. But what I do know is I believe it did come out of the Wuhan lab, and I believe when it came out, you know, China just kind of tried to sweep it under the rug because I don't think they understood the ramifications of how deadly this could be. And believe me, a lot of whistleblowers who did blow the whistle early on, they disappeared. That's what happens in a communist regime and one of the countries who violate human rights all the time. And so what the mistake I think China made was instead of consulting with the most brilliant scientists across the globe and letting them know he, here – I think we opened up Pandora's box. Most countries said they would have gladly sent their brightest minds of scientists there to help them. But instead, they tried to sweep it under the rug. So I think my theory is it was not intentional. It was negligence. What is your theory, Robert? And then to our illustrious guest. Well, as I stated, I mean, my theory is um, – my theory is, is – first of all, I think it was, uh, it was intentional – um, I think that, you know, it, it was created, and they thought, well, this is a good time to do it. And because China, I mean, they've got a billion people. They don't care how many people die in their, in their country. Uh, and they knew that they weren't going to be the only economy to be affected. So, I, I, I mean, if they, wanna, if they lose, a, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, what, what do the Chinese communists care about that? So do I think it was, you know, do, that my theory is that they released it uh, in time to affect the election. That's what, that's what I think. And if not, and if, if it was, as you stated, which I, I mean, I would say that's certainly within the realm of possibilities that it was an oops, uh, a negligence. Uh, the, uh, the, the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party certainly, uh, again, used it, weaponized COVID. And, and not just them. I mean, you know, your, your governors and things of that nature of your blue state certainly used it to try to uh, affect, and I think successfully, 
affect the reelection of Donald Trump? Go ahead, Ian. Sure. Well, um, I think the first thing is the uh, the emails that were released around Fauci and Collins and some of these folks made it pretty clear that the the virology and epidemiology community um, at the time was looking at the sequencing in the COVID-19 and said, there's no way this could have come from a wet market because of certain sequencing in the, the genetic coding. So that means it was a gain of function, not a organic uh, novel coronavirus. Okay, then I, you know, I don't have a way to, you know, unless China decides to allow the the world to come inside and inspect its stuff, which I'm sure it's, you know, all long since covered up whatever evidence might have been there. I don't know if we'll ever know um, whether it was uh, purposeful or not. There's certainly, however, you know, my my um, where I come from on this whole conversation, you know, as not as a not as a scientist in the sense of an epidemiologist, but as a person who is familiar with empire and policy of a republic, Bertrand Russell was very clear. There's a grouping of aristocrats who would prefer to have a uh, some kind of mass casualty pandemic every generation. When you have something you can stampede a population into giving up essential freedoms and and checks and balances to power, um, that's where you are going to find pretty much any tool in your in your work belt to accomplish that. I mean, let's look at 9/11. Okay, let's look at COVID. There's let's look at the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Let's look at the you know Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Uh, let's look at the you know, Russia's invading Ukraine. There's I mean there's a there are so many examples of false flags throughout history that are on the scale of, you know, the big lie. How could you possibly say that? Look at how horrible this was. Yet the evidence shows if, if it, you know, there, there had to have, like for 9-11, my goodness, why was, why was NORAD not, what do we do tonight? Why do we not scramble the jets? Why do, there are so many things that sh- we could look at the towers. There's all kinds of examples here where we say, X, Y, Z didn't happen and other things were set into place and then it just sort of went poof, right? And, it, and, it, and we had a, we have, now we have a casualty of immense proportions and then we use it, certain people use that to ram through the Patriot Act and ram through all kinds of other things like, you know, a warrantless wiretapping state. Uh, that Edward Snowden was talking about, or horrible abuses in Abu Ghraib that uh, you know uh, Manning was went sent to prison for, and all these things. So, like, that's kind of where I'm coming from on this side. Like, whether it was negligence or whether it was a deliberate intervention against Trump or not, there's a whole rap sheet here of of um, of a small grouping who are willing to do things at the expense of of people 
to exceptionally nefarious ends, uh, you know, inside jobs, so to speak. I completely agree, and I actually agree with you uh, in that I don't think we'll ever know the truth. Uh, like you said, uh, whatever trace or paper trail that existed, oh, um, you better believe the Chinese regime covered it all up by now. So even it, it, it would just be like uh, the irony under the Obama administration when they created that uh, policy with Iran about being able to go and see its nuclear sites and make sure they weren't creating nuclear weapons. And the Iranians were dictating to them, well, the Americans wanted to and the Europeans wanted to be able to go to a site without announcing ahead of time to make sure they were not uh, you know, conducting any nefarious things. And basically they said no. You, you you have to let us know when you're coming on site, when you're going to do the inspection. Iran was calling the shots, and America was once again leading from behind because of the Obama-Biden administration. So a lot of those whistleblowers who warned of the COVID-19 coming out of the Wuhan lab, they're probably not – sadly, they're probably not even alive today. And so I would completely agree. I think the biggest or one of the most biggest asterisks that's going to be next to global history is I don't think we'll ever really truly know what really happened with COVID-19. Was it a conspiracy theory? Uh, was it intentional? Was it not? I don't think we may ever have a definitive answer because, you know, the Chinese have a job of covering it up, and I say that facetiously. Uh, Ian, what say you? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, you know, there's there's whole groups of people who are dedicated uh, to uh, collecting tidbits around uh, major tragedies. Um, there's groupings around the, you know, like the murder of uh, JFK, for example. Uh, uh, there's people around 9-11. There will be people around uh, the origins of, of COVID. Um, there's going to be people who will who will um, who will take, as I mentioned, as a like a, a fetishizing approach uh, to collecting tidbits and factoids and what really happened and going down the rabbit holes to the point you know, long after humanity has has um, moved on. And uh, what we just have to do is I think we have to um, – I think we really have to push the world in a, in a better direction uh, because I think we have to put the future on task that we want to create. Um, so I would actually go back to my conversation earlier about about science from that standpoint that – when we look at if uh, when we when we move away from a logical approach of scientism and truth as being consistent within the logical assumptions and we shift to looking at science from a standpoint of physical demonstration then what we find is that the universe itself operates according to natural laws natural rules and one of those natural laws is to 
to the tendency to greater organization and self-awareness. And that, uh, that example of greater, a tendency to greater organization and self-awareness, it operates on a geological time scale as galaxies become less blobular and more spiralular. It operates on a biological and uh, the way that animals have tendency towards uh, greater control over their external environment. And it operates in the realm of ideas uh, for human beings. And uh, this, you know, we can talk about that. I'd like to um, a little bit. I think that is a really important part of this conversation because if we, um, if we focus simply on trying to dissect the, the, the past uh, or react in the present, then we'll never get around to creating the future that doesn't include a, uh, a small group of people who think that they can treat us as disposable. And we really need to have a future that doesn't include an oligarchy like that. Well, we've been talking about we've been talking about the political class being the new oligarchy probably since the almost close to the inception uh, of the show here almost a decade. Which actually this is June, uh, we'll be on a decade. I'm, I guess we're planning our our ten year anniversary. But go ahead, Joseph. <laughs> I was reminiscing there uh, for a moment. Go ahead, Joseph. <laughs> no, no, because it, it's a glorious moment. It's it's 10 years and uh, that this show, the people show has been on air. That's quite an accomplishment. And uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I completely agree with you, Ian. Uh, you know, one would think that the purpose of history is not only to put on the record what has happened in the past, but is to learn from it to under. And in order to learn from history, you have to have an understanding to a certain degree about historical facts or historical events and yes there is still yes still to this very day they don't really know who killed jfk but the warren commission will say it was just done by um Patrick Oswald, <laughs> one person exactly you know 9-11 there's been two debates bill clinton when he was president he had multiple occasions where he had osama bin laden at range where the CIA said we could take him out right now. He chose to decline. Then in back in 2001, George W. Bush's first term, the FBI reported to the White House to George W. Bush about the suspicion uh, of the hijackers who were only learning how to take off, but they weren't learning how to land the planes. And George W. Bush didn't pay attention to the report. He said, disregard, there's no need to go into that. And then a month later, we were hit with 9-11. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of things could be averted, learning from history, um, making sure history doesn't repeat itself. And so there's just so many conspiracy um, theories on a lot of the things you brought up, and God knows a lot more. And so that's why I say history is now something that's more like subject to interpretation at this point because you'll have one side that will vow, no, no, this is the way it went down. We have first-hand accounts. And you'll have the other side that will counter it and say, well, we have first-hand accounts too, but they differ. 
uh, and you know, so that's that's my view on on history, and that's how. That's why history is so easily distorted. Um, a lot of times there's conflicting views, and I think that's what's going on. That's what's adding to the deterioration of the educate, public school educational system in our country. It's that the same history that was taught 60 years ago is not the same history that's being taught today. And that makes you wonder, geez, has this been going on since the beginning of time, where you've had certain factions that said, no, 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 it happened this way, and then you had an opposing faction that said it happened that way. And I think the public school educational system is a perfect example because today the teachers are teaching segregation. They're teaching critical race theory. They're basically convincing people who have the, the, the skin color white that their ancestors and their lineage is a very, very – is something to be ashamed of and that they've caused so many atrocities all over the world for hundreds to thousands of years. And I think that's sickening. And that definitely was not being taught in our school 60 years ago, even though I wasn't around. But that wasn't being taught. And so that makes you start to question how accurate is history overall? If we could have one side that will say yes and one side that will say no, and then when you ask both sides, can you produce any evidence that support this, they both do. And so it's, 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 it's become a very – what should not be a confusing topic. History is, is becoming very confusing as it seems to be changing every day depending on what side of the spectrum you look at and especially what, what side of the politi political spectrum you're looking at whether it's the left or the right. And I'll defer back to you. Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, everyone has the right to their opinion, and everyone has the right to be wrong if their opinion is wrong. And so when we look at the – when we try to look at understanding the universe we live in, the physical universe, the actual – universal laws that organize creation into existence and give it a momentum, um, you know, whether you have an opinion about um, the harmonics of magnetism or not, or your opinion is one thing or the other, those don't really change how it actually works. So there, there is there is an underlying reality, which is not directly observable, and uh, as human beings, we're the only species that we know of with the demonstrated ability to discover and wield these natural laws in the form of technology that uh, we can change the very like nature of our existence at will by making a discovery of principle. No other form of life we've encountered so far has been able to do that. So that makes us superior to animals and it makes us responsible for the world we live in, 
because only we have the power to say deflect an asteroid. You know, dinosaurs clearly didn't have that power. <laughs> Uh, only, only we have the ability to um, to cause a, a life form to not go extinct on purpose. Um, only we have the ability to uh, reproduce our biosphere in the form of a spaceship and leave the planet when we want to. Um, that's pretty amazing. And when we when we when we uh, rise to the level of of acting on the on the universe, acting on on the above the petty uh, that, as you point out, so very much dominates our discourse today. Uh, when we rise to this higher level, which I think um, we must do. To survive, that is what that is our strength. You know, other other forms of life, you know, they can run faster than us, they can see better than us, they can um, hunt us <laughs> more effectively. But only us as humans have the uh, ability to domesticate other animals. And and cool. um, yeah, so so I think I think cool. we need to really we need to really put that. Um, that to bear when, when you know, and and then in in the discussion of, of of what's true and how to how to direct history. So, if I may ask you, Ian, um, civilization has proven that history has been rewritten in order to indoctrinate or brainwash a certain population to believe a, a propaganda or narrative. Perfect example since we've been talking about the Nazis is the rise to the Fuhrer, Hitler. Um, you know, he basically campaigned on the Jew Germans being the fault of losing the Great War and for the Treaty of Versailles, which, um, you know, put plundered um, Germany in, into poverty after the Great War. And so I, I, I think that's, um, I'm sorry if I didn't clarify it enough. That's what I'm trying to say is, you know, history is a dangerous game, especially when one side is trying to rewrite it and the other side is saying, no, that's not what happened. So if you study history, you know, the rise of Hitler was mainly due to that. And, you know, they put that in the German books and the German history, um, you know. And so same thing with what the left is doing today, uh, censoring uh, what big tech is doing, woke. Uh, all those issues, if you dare disagree with someone on the left, you're a white supremacist, you're a homophobe, you're a xenophobe, um, you're an anarchist. So, you know, what is your what is your view on that? Because that's what, you know, right now, today, I feel that the left is trying to rewrite American history in order to brainwash our youngest generation so they can have well, more yeah, votes and in power. Correct. Well, I don't. But, I don't think they care about votes. I think um, I do think you're right. They care about the power. I think at some point, I mean, um, what, what do we what do we look at the other day that um, approximately two million uh, immigrants have come across the southern border illegally, and that the Biden administration is flying them all over the country. Um, 
uh, two million people is about equivalent to around three congressional districts worth of people. Uh, and, we, and we talk about the drop box ballots and the things that are being done. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. pretty clear that they don't they don't care about um, the the technicalities of voting, uh, legitimacy, power, and are working to exercise power in ever more explicitly raw forms. So, I mean, those things you just described about the hypocrisy and the, you know, the of cancel culture, uh, that's where we're seeing, you know, <laughs> it, it's not about, it's not about the holes in their logical system. You know, we talked about a logical system as being based in certain core assumptions. And when you can prove that the core, when you can isolate, test, and prove that the core assumption is not just, it's, it's a false opinion, uh, that you, people are not composed of races. We're composed of souls, and our souls are creative. That's why every single person can intermarry and have children that are fertile. You know, like, like you know, uh, animals can't do that. Dogs and cats can't mate. You know what I mean? We have, when, when human beings... We reproduce biologically. Any human being can marry and have children with any other, you know, human being of the opposite sex because there's only one race. There aren't races of people. There's, like, skin tone. So we, we can, can easily disprove you know, every single human being capable of a mind, they have the ability to conceive of profound, true, proven principles respecting man and nature. So that's what makes us human. So we now have proven, yet again, that the critical race theory is a false, racist, uh, axiomatic, logical system. And the result is they know that too, I think. I don't think Joy Reid believes the crap she talks about or these other – I mean, maybe she does, (laughs) but probably not. I think at some point she probably understands that, like, all people are actually people, maybe. <laughs> but, you know. And I think the, those the, are the dangers of those who try to rewrite history for their own gain. Yeah, and yeah they're just that's acting it out for, their own, for own, their own power. Yeah. They don't, they don't care about being, being caught in their hypocrisy. Um, they think they've got this show in the bag, and they can just do that and be brazen with it. And I think it's, it's up to us to not try to simply debate them on their term. We have to win the culture war. We have to, like, there was a really good article about, about conservatives needing to win the culture war that I was reading art, uh, recently because we, we need to win the war of, the, like, the beautiful culture. The, we can outflank the, the uh, I mean, everything that the left is doing right now is, is ugly, based on ugliness. You know, God don't like ugly. <laughs> but we're, we can't just sit here and debate how wrong they are. Because they don't care. That's not, their, that's not yeah. their goal. We need to win the culture war with the optimism and the beauty and the profundity of mankind. 
I couldn't agree with you more. It's great to talk about it, but you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. And that's something that Robert and many others on this show have been advocating for the longest time. It's just not enough to talk about it. We have to, we have to, we have to, we have to take action. Actions speak louder than words. We could spend three hours a week on this amazing podcast talking about it, but can we change anything by simply talking about it? Yes, we can change things by talking about it to a certain degree, but the game changer, if we really want to change the direction in which our country is going, it has to be done with action. It can't be done any, any, other, way, any, any other way. You're absolutely right. Any other way will not produce the, the end result that we're seeking. So for the last, uh, since 2004, when I first encountered it, I've been involved with the LaRouche Political Action Committee, uh, and we just formed another, you know, our, our, our LaRouche PAC Action. Uh, we're a organization which is a political fighting force. We're not just sitting around having profound ideas and sipping tea with our pinkies out. Uh, we have classes and regular conversations to organize and engage the population uh, like you're doing with your radio show, Robert. Um, but we also go out there and actually organize and lobby and push ideas and teach people the science that I've been talking about to uh, recruit people to sing in community choirs like I was talking about to actually produce beautiful art yourself, to learn the skills to do it, to rediscover the original discoveries of the great thinkers like Plato uh, to begin with and then throughout civilization. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. You can't just talk about stuff uh, because, you know, the revolution doesn't happen in the coffee shop. You can have, you can make discoveries that way, right? Go out and do your research and discover something, and that's fabulous. But you also got to go out there and have the political fights with people about why pop culture is a form of slavery. You have to have the political fights with people about, you know, how your scientism is not science, how, and then challenge people to, well, how do you actually know what's true? Have you ever proven something to be true on your own, or are you just deferring to authority? Like, let's, let's actually test what something I'm like that. About them. <laughs> That's a good one. And that's yeah. what I love How do you know about it's true? the LaRouche Pack. Because someone Pac. told you it was? <laughs> Correct. And that's what I love about the LaRouche Pack. We need more, more organizations like the LaRouche Pack, more than ever in this, in our most troubling time as a country, to step up to the plate. You guys are definitely lead by example. And I have the utmost respect for you. And I think Robert loves you. He has you on the show pretty frequently. But you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you've you got to fight if that's what it takes because how many other previous generations spilled blood and died just to, to, to ensure that the next generation inherited the, the freest country in the world, the, the right. land of the free and the home of the brave? So I love the LaRouche Pack. But if we just had more collaboration, if we had more organizations – similar and like-minded like the LaRouche Pack, I think we would be able to mount a much more successful and more powerful conservative movement. Uh, and I yes. wanted to ask what, what, what you think about that and, what Robert, what do you think about that as well? Because I think well, two is, is stronger thing, than one, one, one thing three I is stronger say, than two. 
Well, one thing I've been saying a lot here on the show for, you know, a while now, not like years or anything, but, you know, I'll say the past couple years, uh, and, and let's hope that uh, we don't get cut off. We, we, we'll still be talking, but I don't know what happened last week um, with the system, but it, it cut off the last half hour of the show on the podcast, so I don't know what happened with that. It still was a, you know, pretty popular episode, but uh, – I don't know what happened. I got cut off the last half hour or so. All the nice, the good stuff we said, the the last half hour didn't make it to the podcast. <laughs> no stuff. I don't know what happened. Uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen this week. It was an, uh, Hopefully it was a one-off. Uh, but anyway, I mean, here I, th- I say that in some ways, and, and hear me out, Ian, because I don't know if you've ever heard me say this before, uh, is that I think we do need the, 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 the conservatives, uh, I think we do need to take some of the uh, playbook of the left. And what I mean by that is the left is very visible. I mean, they are the ones out in the streets. They are the ones protesting, they, they, you know, en masse, you know, out, you know, and that gets that, you know, so many people, thousands and thousands of people uh, that get, you know, the attention. Now, I'm not stating that, you know, we should get, you know, violent like what happened in the, the BLM riots, uh, you know, back in 2020. But I think like the the Tea Party movement, you know, years ago, I think in 2008, I think is when, you know, we, we need to see things much like that, uh, you know, with, in the streets. I think, you know, we need, we need to develop that tactic. I think we need more people, and I, I really hope it's not too late for this, but one thing I mentioned is, you know, us here on the right. I mean, we're, we're the um, we're the accountants. We are the contractors. Uh, we are the people that build businesses. You know, we're the ones who make America run. Uh, now, on the liberals, what they did is they put themselves in position. The left puts them in the position to be the influence of people. And people are influenced through music. They are influenced through art, as you pointed out, Ian. But unfortunately, you know, the, the art world and the music industry is pretty much taken over by the left. And what, what the left has also taken over, uh, they've also taken over, you know, the social services, uh, the, the people who are so are so called, you know, so called people who care for other people. Uh, they've taken over, um, you know, the media. Uh, or the so-called media, which of course are now just propaganda arms and almost as bad as the, uh, you know, a, a Chinese or Russia uh, propaganda, you know, machines at this point. Uh, but they're in the media, so they've taken over that. They've taken over academia. So the left has taken over what people, you know, that could basically control people's minds. And what I mean by that is they're the educators, they're the influence, influence, they're the entertainers. That's what the left did. Now, whether it's too late for, uh, you know, those of us on, you know, conservatives to try to, you know, in, ingrain ourselves in those, uh, those industries, I don't know if it's too late for that. I hope not. But that, that's another thing we need to do. I mean, we need more, you know, we, we need more educators. And, I mean, I'm telling you, I don't really like and, and entertainers. I really don't like country music. But I love country, not all of them, but I, I love country, uh, you know, artists, because most of them are very patriotic. I'm not big into their music, but they, they, they are, for the most part that I've seen, you know, patriotic. And so that's, you know, a little niche 
I guess, inside the, you know, entertainment industry, but we need more, you know, more people in there. I mean, you, you got some brave souls, uh, like, in, you know, in football and basketball who are standing up against these, you know, this COVID tyranny, uh, you know, as I call it. Um, but I think we need, I think that's another thing we need to do is, is in the future, you know, have our kids, yeah, we want our, our, our kids, you know, running businesses and, and being, you know, in those type of fields that are more, you know, college orientated. Well, of course, you got to get it for being a teacher, but uh, I think we need to we need to get ourselves more into those industries. I mean, what what do you say, Ian? Well, I, I think that it's it's happening already. Uh, actually, um, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about what's happening in Canada with the trucker rallies or the yeah, protests that. that had been going on across Europe against the different lockdowns uh, that's been going on for a while. Uh, even on the uh, so-called left or among liberals, uh, people like uh, Naomi Wolf, uh, uh, um, you know, what's her name? Uh, J- uh, J.K. Rowling. When people come out and say, no, no, this is too far. The Twitter mobs go after them and it, it's really about whether or not they will uh, bend under pressure or not so it comes down to a moral quality of uh, being able to stand up to mob opinion and that's something which is not necessarily just I mean, maybe, I don't know, it's not something that has is a uh, monopoly within a certain political party. That's, that's a human quality. So that's why you're seeing certain people who are nominally liberals or have been or still identify as Democrats uh, who, are, who are also speaking out very much against the, um, that, that tyranny. Tulsi Gabbard is a good example. Surprising me lately. (laughs) And and even in and also in the entertainment industry, I mean, Chuck Norris. There's a whole bunch of of actors who are, or TV personalities who are. They just don't advertise. You're right. They don't necessarily. They haven't necessarily advertised their um, their values the same way with the same. Uh, obnoxiousness, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, and I don't know if we wanted. To, I don't know if us becoming more obnoxious is actually the right approach to that either. Um, I think maybe perhaps when it comes to winning the culture war against the left, what we need to think about is. Um, so, for example, I'll give you an example here. So, again, remember my background with music um i i first encountered the classically arranged african-american spiritual uh and i had been pretty i had been pretty cynical about christianity i'm not gonna lie um especially how to the resident uh, pagan (laughs) self oh Yeah. yeah that's cool yeah so um pretty pretty fed up with the uh I'll tell you a story when we're off air about some of that stuff. We're, I was pretty fed up with the, uh, the superficiality of, like, the Campus Crusade for Christ and those obnoxious little pamphlets they would leave in the bathroom, uh, little comic book pamphlets, you know, that kind of stuff. And when you Are you going to hell, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, the four spiritual laws. 
or the 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 five dollar bill that's actually a Bible scripture. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> but anyway, I don't think so, I've seen that one. Oh yeah, it's like I folded up five dollar bill. And you're like, yes, I really needed some money, and they're like, you'd be rich if this was Jesus. <laughs> you're like, oh man. Yeah. Well, so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. But anyway, well, I tell you what. Um, I'll be honest with you. One of my one of my pet peeves is one my, one of my pet peeves is when people on the uh, on, on the corner looking for getting you know trying to get people to panhandlers getting money. And they say, oh, homeless, give me money. And at the end of their sign, they almost invariably say, God bless. And, and I never give to those people, uh, not because, I, you know, I'm, I'm irreligious or have anything to do with religion at all. Actually, you know, sometimes I envy people who have that kind of faith. But that's a story for a different day. But I really, truly yeah. think, feel that those people putting God bless on those signs, is they're actually using people's religiosity to try to get some dollar bills out of them. Anyway, go ahead, Ian. That just drives me nuts. Like, don't try to use someone's Could sense of, of charity to get yourself a couple bucks so you can go do whatever you want to do with that money. But go ahead. <laughs> sure. Sure. So the so my when I encountered the, the spirituals, these are – so after emancipation, um, Antonin Dvorak uh, came over to the United States. He was a student of Johannes Brahms, and he helped codify the or, or write down and, and organize and collect the canon of of Negro spirituals and arrange them with a number of other you know uh, black composers and arrangers into the uh, uniquely American set of songs. And what what really struck me about this music and singing it is that it speaks of profound human suffering and and the de, and the dehumanization of slavery, and it speaks of it in a way which is transfigured. So it's you know there's there's you know you got upbeat stuff, you got downbeat stuff, you got Solemn, you got celebratory, but the 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 overall across the the spectrum of the songs is a message of of, of transfiguration of suffering into virtue, and that is a um, when it has the ability to pierce the jaded shell we put up around ourselves to protect ourselves from the BS of, of society. And I, and I was, and I was, uh, it, it pierces through your defenses like a laser beam when it's performed with the right attitude. It's the, it's actually the responsibility of the artist to take their art seriously enough and not be cavalier, uh, with, with this to, to keep the tension and, 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 and wield it, um, artistically, and this is a this is this is something that I think speaks to what we uh, an example here of what we need to do when it comes to winning the war in culture. Because at the end of the day, uh, actually charitable acts that uplift people um, are are what makes a difference over slogans like love is love and the other 
you know, weird ass slogans they have on their yard. That's it. it that's what it, when you when you do something so profound that changes a person's life to the point where they are more capable as a human being. Um, and then to the and then they ask you, well, why did you do that for me? And you say, well, because I'm a Christian or, or whatever it is, or because I'm I'm Jewish or because I'm pagan or because because whatever it is that I am, I did it because of love. I did it because of charitable love for my fellow human being. Then you you their humanity is ennobled. That trumps slogans every day of the week. And it's when we start to wield these these principles in our social culture uh, that we are going to win this this war, this battle, uh, uh, versus the the bestial culture that the that this empire is promoting through not just the left either. I mean, you got the people on the so-called right who are, who are pushing this stuff too, like the Dick Cheney's of the world. So let's not be let's not. Um, Let's not totally like boogify the left here. We understand that this is something which is a a bipartisan so-called problem. And certainly there are the Greens and the Libertarians and others too. So, but yeah, that's that's what I would say. Is, you know, we, we really have to um, we have to be able to wield principles of culture that that cause people to become better people, to provoke them to want to be better, to pursue betterment. In their soul, not just in their appearances or in their lifestyle per se. You know what I mean? Their money, but but in their soul. Hello. Yeah. Oh no, it was very. It, it was it, it was gripping. I was, I was literally on every word that he said. It's very. I, I'm fascinated that kind of stuff. I um. I almost, I almost graduated with four minors uh, from college, and, and two of those minors was theology and philosophy. So I was, <laughs> so I was a really an intent uh, on, on listening, and so uh, to the silence because you're just soaking all in. I, I always found that find that stuff fascinating. But I know, uh, yeah, uh, Judge, if you got someone I uh, want to introduce there, and then uh, go ahead and bring him in, and then uh, we'll go from there. We only have about 27 minutes, if you can believe that. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and then uh, I know if, and we do appreciate Dan you, you staying on longer appreciate it but I'm, I'm glad you did because the, you know the last part you're talking about that's uh, that's a lot of uh, you know a, a meat as they say uh, so I, I really appreciate it so that's uh, that was, that was, again that was really uh, fascinating to, to hear that uh, go ahead uh, Joseph. Yeah, so um, because uh, Kelly wasn't able to make it on the show today, and this is the after-hours uh, version of uh, uh, Bard's Logic where anything Bard's goes. Bard's Logic after dark. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> yeah, so I have a guest that's over the, here. That's what we call the third hour. <laughs> Correct. So I'm going to bring him on, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he bears no introduction. Hold on one second. Wait a minute, I heard this is after hours. Do you have any good nanny anywhere? Because we have to clean up. Oh, hello, I'm, I'm here for, for in, in, instead of Kelly. I know he wants to run for office in California. I was the governor. It was incredible. Sorry, I screwed it up for everybody. Opposably. 
Well, how you been? <laughs> oh, you've been on the show. Good to hear from you. Yeah, I got in the car wreck, and it's not my fault at all. The person was, they probably had the disease after COVID, like with the Goldberg, you know, saying bad things about some fucking people. I was horrible. But you know what? I'm okay now, and my son, Joseph, he sells the real estate, and my wife, we're, we're finally divorced. I'm free again. So you're a free man? Is that, is that what you said, Arnold? You're all excited. Absolutely. Whoever wants really to be mad, whoever wants to be mad, she's going to take half my fortune. You know how those Kennedys are? They're with the liquor, and they're putting stuff in the bar. It's horrible. Yeah, they do get half. They want half. Nah, but unfortunately, I got the lawyer, you know, with the, with the little, little hats, and they, they talk they talk in certain ways, and people accuse my people of doing some bad stuff to them, but to me, they're incredible. The lawyer's going to fix everything for me. So that, that's also, what you're paying for, right? Exactly, exactly, but also you have to understand about this COVID. Screw your freedom. You have to understand that the state knows what they're talking about. That's why in California, the, the great people, they're doing incredible things by holding people down and they're even going to double the taxes to, to pay for people so they don't get to the... That's horribly wrong. Arnold, you're pathetic. That's why you try to take over my show and it fails in three days. You're horrible. You're absolutely horrible. Well... So let's, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, uh, how you been? It's great to hear you back on the show. Tremendous to be here. I love being here. I love Bart's logic, political talk, especially after dark, because after dark, you can say pretty much what you want. And I, and I really enjoy that a lot. So I got to ask, I got to ask you and the distinguished guest, Ian, that's an incredible name. You take the A out and you're in with us all the time. You are an A star, believe me. But I gotta ask, not a problem. But I gotta ask, you guys miss me yet? Do you enjoy the Biden economy? Horrible, horrible, horrible economy. You can't even get chicken wings. I love chicken wings. I like chicken wings with my Diet Coke. And you can't even get Diet Coke because the truckers, they don't have the fuel to be the Diet Coke, and it's horrible. Well, no, we, cer- we certainly miss you. That, that probably happened uh, on January 21st. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but I got to say, those Canadian truck drivers, I don't know what they say. I guess they say A or whatever, or I don't know how it works, but they are patriots of their country. And Justin Trudeau, I'm going to go ahead and say, is a little beta. He's a beta. He's horrible. Maybe he should go do some handstands or something. He's in hiding. He's a horrible, horrible leader. And the people of Canada, hope you hear me. America, salute you. Go get your freedom. Unlike over here, we got fighted. And China, they're ruining us. It's horrible. So that is why I told you, or asked, I didn't have my Diet Coke. I do apologize. Do you miss me yet? Well, no, certainly. And, uh, you know, of course, now they're talking about, they want to push about Ukraine. You're familiar with uh, the people there. And not want to say anything about, you know, about China threatening Taiwan. And, of course, your buddy Schiff, you know, is, is out there on Twitter. I have to tell you what, as many lies as he's told, uh, especially about you, I can't believe that anyone uh, believes anything he says. Like, oh, I've, I've got evidence uh, for rough, rough inclusion. You never had it. It looks like uh, NSA Bob 
uh, got a hold of uh, their line. Uh, perhaps we'll get uh, them back. Oh, no, we're at the point. Uh, the NSA Bob shut them down. Um, and, unfortunately, that's the one bad thing about Bard's logic after dark, Ian, is that once someone uh-huh. uh, is hung up, they can't call back in. So NSA Bob strikes again. Yeah, so well, that you, sounds like you the can NSA. Have a, have a conversation with them. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was I was, uh, I was impressed. Um, I was I was impressed with that. That was the first time I ever had a chance to uh, talk to Trump. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing was. Yeah, you know, under Trump, you know, we're going to have, this is going to be the best economy. It's going to be the biggest economy. It's going to be, like, now under Biden, we have the worst economy. Oh, boy. Yeah, no, it's, um, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to throw these guys out uh, quick, fast, in a hurry, man. Well, yeah, I tell you what, it's, um, I mean, even from the beginning, and I mean, I, I'm actually surprised he's lasted as long as he, he has. I figured he would have stepped down by now, really. I mean, I was predicting on the show when he was running, I said, Biden's not going to last a year. So, so, you know, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And so he obviously has lasted a year, unless maybe they somehow were able to animate that wax uh, dummy of him. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, and, and maybe make you know maybe it's animatronics or something is what we're actually seeing. Maybe that's really not Biden you know, we're seeing talking. Maybe they're finally able to you know, use some you know artificial intelligence to make an automaton of, of of Biden. But yeah, so I mean we've gone. I mean think about it. we've gone from about three percent, uh, a little bit over three percent inflation, to about five or six percent now. You know, I do. Uh, I won't say what type of, of work I'm in, uh, but I, I do work with uh, you, you with some numbers. And you know, what I do know is when we did have three percent, there were three or so percent in, uh, inflation. Every you know twenty years, something would double. Well, now every ten years, if inflation stays what it is, which uh, got, hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully uh, there is that red wave that at least last count I heard. 29 uh, uh, U.S. representatives, Democrat representatives, must seem to think so because they either are running for something else or retiring, <laughs> most of them retiring. Um, yeah, I do think a red wave's coming now. We don't just need, as you know, Ian, we don't just need Republicans elected. We need people like, you know, we've had uh, here on the show, uh, Jack Lombardi, who are, you know, citizen candidates. Uh, who are you know are running uh, not just to have an R by their name, but people who actually you know you know patriotic Americans, not career uh, career politicians, the political class. Yeah, sure. So I think one thing that um, one thing that we're we're doing is we're launching a campaign to bankrupt the Federal Reserve and institute a a third national bank in the United States and. Uh, what that means in practice is that, you know, it does, Hamilton understood, Alexander Hamilton understood very clearly that the value of your currency is not what it's printed on. Like you could you could print currency out of, you know, I don't know, belly button lint. 
And as long as you can exchange that currency for actual goods that you produce with your in your country, then it has an assumed value that's tied to that. And when um, when you have uh, a currency that is floating exchange rates tied to the spot market and oil or tied to, you know, the number of fictitious assets traded around like uh, derivatives, um, then, you know, you're, you're, and you're not actually producing anything as an economy, um, then your currency is intrinsically worthless. You print more money, you devalue it, you cause inflation. There's no, and it, that system will collapse. I mean, it, it's an, it cannot live. It will eventually collapse. And in that, it's collapsed multiple times. Every single time it's been bailed out. I mean, that's what happened in 2008. That's what happened in 1998. I mean, it's been uh, many times. What we're calling for is a restoration of Hamilton's American system uh, with a, uh, a national bank, a diff, you know, the opposite of the Federal Reserve, where the you issue like as Kennedy did for example you know issuing treasury notes to fund large projects and when you when you uh, and we we need to start retiring the federal reserve notes and building the um you know for example like like a treasury note uh the circulation of so let's say let when you look at the um the standard of living uh, the uh, Army Civil Corps of Engineers, they have these um, report cards they put out that talk about all the messed up things that are going on and we need to fix from, you know, bridges to airports to dams and all these things. If we were to issue uh, treasury notes to start, you know, building those things, putting people to work in those sorts of things, training people on how to have those kinds of jobs, we can start retiring and winding down the debt that we've assumed off of the backs of, you know, the American people off of Wall Street. We can start retiring that and writing some of that stuff off and increasing the currency supply that's backed by real wealth. You know, that would actually, <laughs> that would actually imp- improve the purchasing power of the American citizen and reduce inflation uh, and actually improve the living standard all at the same time. Uh, we have a, uh, you know, we have a a, a, a a mass circulation leaflet for this. I don't know if I can I can uh, tell you about that, but people can actually um, join our political cause. They can join us in direct political actions, and and that's something I'd like to promote here. If people yes, go to yes, uh, LaRouche, yes, yes. yeah, if people can go to LaRouchePack.com, L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E-P-A-C, LaRouchePack.com, and they can uh, uh, sign up with us to get involved, to donate money, to engage in lobbying activities for things like this. Uh, the whole nine, I mean, the whole three hours we've been talking about, that is what we're doing. Uh, and and you know and more even, <laughs> but bankrupt the Federal Reserve System, create the Third National Bank. This is this is a uh, an actual policy that we're putting forward here to restore uh, financial sovereignty in the United States 
so that when Trump wins in 24 or maybe we can get something sooner, uh, you know, we can actually have a way to finance an actual real uh, industrial recovery in the United States without being, you know, without relying on um, whether or not Wall Street wants to do it. If you recall, during the Civil War, you know, Lincoln had a huge problem getting credit to fund the revolution or uh, to save the country. So he created the greenback to do that. Th- that's kind of what I'm talking about. Let's let's actually mm-hmm. go around the creditors who are who don't want us to be able to get back up on our feet again. And we do that by restoring financial sovereignty over our credit. Now, what's the? I mean, what kind of mechanisms have to actually occur for that to happen? Yeah, well, we should probably take all the people at Jackson Hole or Davos and throw them out a window. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, not literally. Yeah, that's illegal, but you no, know I what gotcha. I mean. Politically, yeah, politically though. Um, no, we have to. We have to accept that there are there are literally quadrillions of dollars that are like on the books that are worthless because they are not backed by anything other than a presumed contrived values. And we need to reorganize. So when you, when you accept that that's true and that there's quadrillions of dollars of fake assets that are out there, I mean, obviously that can cause a financial panic. And so in order to prevent you know, runs on banks and things like that. We need to issue credit uh, that's backed by actual production. We did this uh, numerous times in the history of this country. Uh, We did it with the New Deal through things like the WPA and the Tennessee Valley Authority. We did it during Lincoln's time through things like the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, John Quincy Adams' time, we did this through the, uh, the Erie Canal and other projects. So uh, there are uh, historical precedents for this. This is not a, a, a new thing. This is not a reinterpretation. This is actually the foundation of Hamilton's Federalist credit system, that, which was held up as, as uh, constitutional by the Supreme Court. It was uh, used by Washington and other, other presidents repeatedly throughout history. So this is, this is not a new concept. But it basically what we're doing is we're going to tie our, our currency, the issuance of our currency, not to um, spot market, which, you know, gold and silver could be a spot market. I mean, who determines the price of these things, right? Markets do. London does, actually. But if we, if we tie the, the issuance of credit and currency to the, the, uh, the building of programs, like we like, um, for example, um, let's take the Tennessee Valley Authority for example. Um, I'm just going to make up numbers. Let's just say building a new TVA for the western half of the continent from to deal with the, all the floods and fires and droughts and all that stuff in California. Uh, if we were to redirect runoff water from the coast of British Columbia through Alaska and direct it over the Rockies and irrigate and terraform everywhere from, you know, California through Western Texas and even Northern Mexico. There was a program called the North American Water and Power Alliance 
that uh, Bobby Kennedy supported when he was a senator in the 1960s. The, um, we've done a lot of work on this as a policy. Let's just say that costs a trillion dollars, which is probably a small price tag for an intercontinental water management Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, but we issue a trillion dollars over a certain number of years, maybe a generation, to build this program. And we retire the Federal Reserve notes, which are, you know, fiat. And we start to build this program. Um, we will be generating new revenue through the building of the program. When we sail the electricity from the dams, when we have the crops, when we irrigate the farm, when we reclaim the farmland, when we uh, prevent fires from burning up communities and we reduce insurance costs. All these things that are going to be happening in terms of real physical economic productivity, that's what we're unleashing and that's what gives the currency value because now you can exchange that, we'll just call it a treasury note, uh, now you can exchange that note for that kilowatt of electricity for that bushel of corn or whatever, um, for that community, you know, you can buy a house and not have to pay out the wazoo for insurance because the threat of wildfires is less. So these are things that you're, you're able to increase the, the living standards and the productive standards of society by, by issuing credit to build those things. And you're not going to be allowing those, the value of that credit to be gambled with uh, by people who would basically disrupt it, who would disrupt the value. And that's um, that's something that we've talked about and, and, and done as a country many times. We can do it again. We should do it again. Now, one thing I believe that the LaRouche Pack talks a lot about, or at least you know, was one of the folks is, um, or, like, or like to see is a, you know, a, a crash um, program for the space program, like the Artemis program. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, it's, nothing drives human progress faster than space exploration. So, um, well, and that, if we could just you know, uh, convince – two things. One, convince Congress that, you know, it's something worth putting the dollars to and fully funding it. And plus, I mean, they do really need to see it not only as a, you know, becoming an economic boom. Because, I mean, it's getting to the point where we are, we are, it's going to be a national, you know, I think, it's going to be a national security, um, you know, concern. And, you know, because what, I mean, China, they're trying to take over, you know, in the space race. So I really think, and I don't think we want, you know, as the words current hegemon to, uh, to allow, you know, allow that to happen to let them to beat us in space. And I've made this analogy many times, and then I guess we're going to get to closing comments soon. Uh, but you know, you look at his, you know, look at history. I, I'm, not, I'm not a historian, but I know when you had the army such as Alexander's, uh, who had control of the land through their armies, uh, you know, they were the world power. And then when you had, uh, you know, Rome, you know, kind of do the same thing. And then when you had the England be able to control the trade routes and the uh, the seas, uh, they became the world power. And then when the United States took over to be, uh, you know, had control of the air, you know, then the United States took preeminence uh, power in the world. Well, the next person to, and I'm abbreviating this a lot, 
But I, I, I believe that the, you know, the next nation to uh, have the preeminent power in space is going to be the next preeminent power of the world. So we better keep that in mind with what China is trying to, to do with that, you know, and that's just the national security aspect of it. But unfortunately, we only got a, uh, about six minutes left. I got to take about three and a half of that for um, my closing comments and for uh, the ending song that, you know, I play um, at the end of Speaking of Music. It's kind of a, it's a soothing song, so there's no, not, no words to it. It's all music and uh, uh, vocals. Uh, but no, like, well, I guess there is words, but there, you, you'll hear if you stay on at the end and hear it. But anyway, so I'd like to take this time about um, two minutes or about a minute for your closing comments, and then I'll have to close things out. But I really appreciate you spending all the time you did for uh, with us today, Ian, and hopefully we'll have you back on the show. Uh, sure. So two minutes. So basically, Robert, I want to thank you for uh, reaching out to me and inviting me to be on your show. Uh, I would encourage all your viewers, if you agree with the endorsements you heard and you like the conversation, whether or not you agree with all the points that were made, let's have more of this conversation uh, every uh, Monday night and every Saturday evening we have uh, live conversations uh, on LaRouchePack.com, and I would encourage your guests to um, get to know the various people, not just myself, who are involved with the group and to engage in a dialogue with us uh, so that we can further these goals and, and win this fight and save this country and cause humanity to progress in uh, real and profound ways. Yeah, I've been to, I've been to a number of the meetings, um, but lately it seems uh, like they're having a lot of time that I'm going so proud or other politicking uh, that I've been um, I've been doing lately. Uh, but, I, you know, no, I certainly appreciate you coming on. I definitely want to have you back on uh, and also, you know, have some conversations off air as well. I know you're a busy guy yourself um, with, you know, m- you're making a living too, so I completely understand yeah. that. Uh, now, yeah, hopefully you'll stay on. Uh, I do play the, uh, the closing song, uh, what we do close out by Aubrey Ashburn. Uh, she used to uh, do music. Now she's into art. Uh, at least the last time I, I, I looked, she's, she's doing art. One day I'll own a piece of it. Uh, it. It's interesting that back in 2012 when we started, um, I had much more time then uh, when I was a gamer. And uh, just out of the blue, I just said, hey, you know, I'm going to reach out and see if I can get her on the show. And I actually got an opportunity to email her. What she was is she, um, she did a lot of the songs and music and, you know, background music and, and songs from a video game I used to play. Uh, called Dragon Age, and I thought, man, it'd be kind of cool to actually be able to have a conversation with her. Well, I got a hold of, uh, I guess, her communications director and was able to get her on the show, so it was pretty fascinating, um, you know, stuff to see her on. But next week, folks, uh, we are scheduled to have a gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party in Ohio, uh, Jim Renacci on, so looking forward to have that. We're still working on some logistics. They have Congressman Steve Shabbat on, hopefully the week after that. I've got uh, some other uh, candidates that I've been reaching out to, waiting to hear those, uh, but I'll have to, uh, you know, reach back out to them. But as I promised, I'm going to end tonight, as I do every night uh, for the show, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And we're looking forward to uh, hearing from you all next week. And then you hear you uh, from you again both on and off the air. Uh, but take care, folks, and good night.